Why would Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, visit seabussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word, story time. For another weekend, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon in a decidedly more relaxed mood today than perhaps we've had uh, been in on Tuesday when doing the weekly show because, uh, well, uh, long story short, uh, Donald Trump has just lost the lead in Georgia at time of recording. Uh, he's 917 votes behind, which in some respects, Jeff, has, has fed into the nerd pledge items we're about to go through as a lot of people uh, in our Twitter feeds were were doing their own nerd pledges as the the margin narrowed from 463 to 665 and then the lead of 917, which I noted was Peter Loder's figures for Surrey against Warwickshire in 1958 when he took 9 for 17. But no, that means that we, we start this conversation in a pretty good mood. Hello, Jeff. Also, getting close to the 974, the famous mark that Bradman set for the most runs in a test series Um, so you know just a few more and as the votes keep coming in and uh, yeah I I don't think you have to be politically partisan to greet uh, getting rid of a fucking terrible human being um, who will uh, probably you know he'll probably end up on some show on Sky News with Mark Latham and whatnot within a few months and (laughs) and try to set up a sort of cabinet in exile but anyway let's uh, Let's hope we don't jinx it and all keeps going well in that department. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Watching some of the, the coverage come in from Australia. I mean, uh, watching Sky News panel tonight, it almost inspired me to leave CNN, which I've been on almost 24 hours a day since Tuesday, you know, up, up through the night and, and so on. But seeing the panel that assembled on, on Sky News Australia this, this evening, I mean, I've said it before, but I feel very sorry for my uh, friends who, who work for Sky and who have actual real jobs for them and do real reporting roles out of Canberra, that they have to be associated with that fucking disgraceful shit show that starts when talking about... Um, the whatever they are after dark but anyway we're going to have a nice positive conversation before doing so uh, a reminder that Stuart McGill will be with us next Thursday so uh, we've had a lot of people in touch over the last 48 hours to say that they have uh, been in Involved with our patron page which is lovely so uh, the easiest way to engage with us and make sure that you can be with us to talk with McGill up next Thursday night Australian time or Thursday morning UK time is to go to patreon.com forward slash the final word register there and then Jeff uh, what we did last time was you to send the post out about an hour before the show and you can log into the zoom chat there yeah it couldn't be easier at that point we just put a post up on the site and that should mean that you get an email with it as well and you just hit the link and in you go as long as you've got zoom on your computer or your phone or whatever it is and then you can you can watch the show and once we get to the q a section we'll start getting questions from those of you watching on which there's a a chat function where you can send things through by text and we may be able to bring some people in uh, to have their audio on and to ask Stuart some questions directly so we'll try to have some fun with that as well and uh, yeah that's that's the easiest way because if you do patron you can set your own price of admission and you can you know you can set your your monthly thing and leave it for as long or short as you want and uh, if you don't want to do that there's a separate 
uh, link where you can buy a one-off ticket if you want and that means we'll just email you the access details so however you want to do it it's pretty straightforward the links will all be in the show notes and uh, chatting to Stuart McGill it should be fun I've, I've been watching quite a bit of his highlights just to get in the mood and I think you could safely say that genuinely nobody turned to the ball more in professional cricket than Stuart McGill like it, it is absolutely insane the level of of lateral movement that that guy got just from shredding it out somehow you know I mean Shane Warne was a big turner of the ball but McGill's even even bigger it goes even wider yeah he was a he was a genius uh, for how he could turn the ball square you go back and watch that uh, performance against England in 98-99 when he he'd already been on the stage a little bit earlier that year but really arrived with that 7 for 50 and some of those balls I mean they turned almost more than square if that's possible it felt like some of them were turning back on themselves are going that far so and he's in great nick as well Megillah we've been talking a bit on the DMs and on the WhatsApps in the last few days and he's also been up all night watching the election on a big screen there and so he's ready to roll don't worry about that so if you have enjoyed uh, Stuart McGill's work on the field I'm sure you'll enjoy it off the field as well with us on the final word Zoom Live next Thursday 8pm Melbourne time let's call it Australian Eastern Daylight Savings Time or 9am London have a look in the show notes for a link for a ticket but as we say the easiest way is to jump on through the patron and Jeff before we progress to the main reason we're talking today i can see down the zoom screen mm-hmm. that you have in your hand something that we've been talking about on twitter uh, with our listeners there's been a new addition to the flavored milk family and you've gone <laughs> and you've got you've crossed the sydney harbour bridge to get your hands on one can i just say in light of um some recent events involving new york uh, times writers saying i can see down the zoom line that you've got something in your hand <laughs> is probably um, probably a bad option at times but, but yeah, quite a few people have contacted us about the violet crumble milk that's been getting around and it was largely spoken about as something in South Australia, I think, and maybe at some IGAs in Victoria and I'm in Sydney, but eventually I worked out that they are in Coles Express shops, but not in not in regular supermarkets. So I had to go and find um, one of those petrol stations in, in Sydney and lo and behold, there it was. I'm just going to break the neck of it now on on, on air. And, and have the first sample. Do it. That's, that really works. That really works. I mean, I'm not, I'm not too sure about the tagline they've gone on the bottle, which, was, which is um, making Violet Crumble into a drink means less shatter, more splatter. Um, that also <laughs> sounds a bit dubious. But look, nonetheless, um, hopefully it doesn't come out that way. Hopefully that's just as it goes in. But yeah, look, it's rich. It's creamy. Uh, it's got a. It, it's got that distinctive honeycomb taste, and you can almost feel the crunch, uh, even though it's a liquid. I, I can't explain that, but psychosomatically, the crunch is there. I uh, I was asked by Rach the other night, "What's your favourite type of ice cream?" To which I responded, "Crunchy ice cream is my favourite ice cream." Followed closely by Paddle Pop Rainbow ice cream. For yep. I am a child at heart, <laughs> uh, and always will be. But yes, thank you for uh, a couple of people said they were going to buy some of it for me, um, so I'd have some upon returning to Australia. I'm sure you will as well, Jeff, with the Violet Crumble. There's the Bundaberg Rum Milk that we had sent to us as well on election night, which. I mean, I, I've, I mean that, that's, that's another level again. That looks dangerous. That looks like something that you'd be drinking at the shotgun breakfast on Anzac Day morning at about 5.55 after the dawn service. And, you know, when someone's put about three tots of actual rum into it and it's not just the flavouring. Um, 
yeah, I've, I've I've never I've never struggled more in my life than you know spending Anzac Day with military types on a couple of occasions where it's like, well, yeah, it's it's quarter past six now and it's time for shots, and you're like, I. <laughs> I don't think I'm made for this, you know. I don't think this is going to end well. Um, when when you when someone's vomiting out of a taxi before midday, you know things haven't really worked out. But you know, um, yeah, just just be careful of the Bundaberg one. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I like the idea that the polar bears have been turned into some flavoured milk um, with rum included. Mm. It's lovely in theory. Uh, let's see how it goes in reality. We'll find out when I get back to Australia. And one last thing in this uh, protracted introduction I neglected to mention. It's always one thing I forget. It's the interview that we've got coming on the back of the show today, Jeff. It's with Jared Kimber. Now, you might see it in the feed and think, Jared Kimber, didn't you guys talk to him a couple of weeks ago on the main show? And we did. But for the purpose of story time, what we've done is we've uh, pulled together a long interview that Daniel Norcross and I did with Jared for the Calling the Shots program earlier in the year. Episode five was called The Disruptors. Jeff, you're one of the guests. Jared was a, another one of the guests. And he was quite magnificent. Uh, if you heard Jared uh, two weeks ago uh, discussing any number of different topics in cricket and really non-stop for 45 minutes, well, here's Jared non-stop for an hour and a half about alternative cricket broadcasting, the history of Crick Info. I mean, he's quite brilliant uh, when you get him going, and this is one of his pet topics. And his own story as well, of course, the award-winning Death of a Gentleman film that he made with Sam Collins a few years ago and, and all the rest. So um, stick around for the end of the chat. It's taken some um, surgery to get that pulled together through the week. But I think it's worth it, and I think you'll enjoy it. So that will be at the end of the show. We're finally into the meat and bones of the show, and Jeff, we do that through Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge, the game of nerds, the game of pledges, the game we play with the lovely people on our patron page where they decide to support the show by sending us a number of dollars and cents, but it's not just any number. It's a number that relates to cricket in some unexplained way and between us, Adam and I have to calculate what that might be. Uh, I should also advise you that Joe Biden's up 1096 votes now in in Georgia, so that's that's almost up to that score that Victoria made in the Sheffield Shield. What was that, 1134? Uh, yeah. getting, I think we've getting think we had there 10 for 96 get... before. Uh, I reckon this might. Be that, I reckon that's an old nerd pledge. It just for some reason, hmm. it sticks out, and I just can't quite. Oh no, it was 10 for 98 we had recently, and that was because, okay. of course, Australia were all out for 98 on Boxing Day in in 2010. Mm-hmm. But maybe 10 for 10 for 96 might become a nerd pledge in the future on account of um, the fact that it's come up while Biden has pushed his lead in Georgia. So that time will tell. Please continue. Okay, so this is what we do. We, we get the number and we try to work it out. Now, the first number we have is a double header, which means that two different pledges have sent through the same number, but they probably have different reasons for doing so. Those pledges are Cameron Allen and Christopher Byrne. Their number is $2.21. Cameron did send a clue, which is that his number relates to associate cricket in some way. Christopher Byrne did not. So you have an entire blank canvas on the Byrne front. Adam, where have you got to with 2 
1-800-222-1. Where I've gotten to, I will come to in a sec. I just want to note that 1096 is, it rings a bell for a different reason. It's because that's what Ryan Sidebottom, the Victorian Ryan Sidebottom, not the Englishman, took at Lords a, a couple of years ago when playing for Warwickshire, 10 for 96. I'm still picking him to make it uh, to international cricket at some point, which would be one of the all-time great stories. But anyway, an early digression. 2-2-1. The clue about associate cricket from Cameron led me to the 2007 World Cup and Ireland's campaign there. Of course, we know all about what happened on St. Patrick's Day. We've talked about that many, many times on the final word, a famous day for Irish cricket. But two days before it, at the same ground at Jamaica, they tied with Zimbabwe. And this in itself was a momentous achievement given it was their mm. first ever World Cup fixture. So uh, they tied with the scores on 2-2-1. It was uh, Jeremy Bray who made an unbeaten 115 to get Ireland to that score. A young Owen Morgan, uh, I'll have you know, made 21, uh, batting at number four. And then they ended up bowling out Zimbabwe for 2-2-1 from the final ball. Ed Rainsford, who we've both worked with at different times, the former Zimbabwean international, now a commentator. Well, he was run out by Niall O'Brien, who I was working with a few weeks ago as well, uh, from the final ball of that game, which meant that Zimbabwe and Ireland ended up with scores level on 2-2-1. And the other part of this I liked was that Kevin O'Brien, who's been there for all of those sort of remarkable days in Irish cricket, Kevin somehow features, whether it's the Bangalore win in 2011 or, of course, uh, knocking off England earlier this year at Southampton. But there he was uh, back in 07, taking the eighth wicket. He only bowled two overs at the very end, but picked up the eighth wicket in that defensive 2-2-1. So he was influential there, as he always seems to be. So that's where I am for Cameron. 2-2-1, the 2007 World Cup in Jamaica. I like that. Uh, and when it comes to Christopher Byrne, there's a, a more direct and a more simple link that, that has a strong link to the final word, and that is via one Peter Siddle, favourite of the show. Yes, that's right. 2-2-1 test wickets. Uh, we, we stuffed this up. The, the only other time that 2-2-1 came up on, on, uh, on, the, on the program, we went somewhere very different and immediately were bombarded with replies saying, how about Peter Siddle? Yeah, Peter Siddle took 221 test wickets and Peter Siddle Day is coming up. Now, of course, with COVID, we've, we've perhaps not been as on this as we otherwise would have been, but uh, Peter Siddle, uh, it'll be 10 years since his birthday hat-trick on the 25th uh, of November. So uh, between now and then, Jeff, I suppose we need to find a way to get him on the show. That's a good prompt. I need to ask him about his um, what's going on with his hair. He's He's gone the full bleached, blonde, yet quite long, sort of almost curly-looking locks um, and suddenly looks about... I don't know, 19, like he's, he's in the under-19s. Um, so I don't, I don't know what's happened there or why that's gone on. Maybe it's a Movember thing or something like that. But there is, um, there's a fair bit going on in the Siddle camp anyway. But, yeah, 221, the test wicket tally. And, you know, they, I think it's easy to forget when you think of how Siddle ended his career as the sort of cagey operator, you know, the classic condescended to wily veteran, etc. You know, how exciting a player he was when he first came mm. through, that sort of 2008 through to 2011-12 where he was properly rapid, super aggressive, badged players on the regular and just could not get enough of bowling for Australia. It was, um, it was a great time to watch someone so enthusiastic about what they were doing. Yeah, that injury, those series of injuries ended up not working for him, but as he sort of explained, that it, it made him reinvent himself. He couldn't bowl at, those, those, uh, at that pace anymore, so he 
found a way to become a different kind of bowler and he's still doing it very effectively for, for Tasmania and, and will again next year for Essex as well in the county championship. So yeah, looking forward to hopefully organising a chat with, with Pete between now and the anniversary of the birthday hat trick. So that is the double header. Uh, thank you to those gentlemen for the number they've sent through. Our next new one comes from the History of the Netherlands podcast. Now, they tried to confuse us because a while ago they sent through a number that was $1.16 uh, and then a while later they changed that to $1.17 and so we weren't sure if it was a correction. But in the end, they're two completely different numbers that have nothing to do with one another. They just happen to be one digit apart. And the clue for this number is that it came to mind to look this up, we're told, while watching Ben Stokes bat against the West Indies this year. It has to do with twin tons. And the notable feature there is that Ben Stokes uh, made a very, very slow 100 and then was batting very rapidly in the second innings. And so this is what I was looking at. I was looking at twin tons, but was there... Was there something that linked in terms of there being a, a big disparity? Twin tons where a player has made 117 as one of them has happened four different times. Matthew Hayden did it against Sri Lanka in that top-end test um, about 16 years ago. But both of those hundreds were pretty attacking hundreds. Uh, there was Eddie Painter, the great 1930s England batsman, one of their players who averages over 50, of which there aren't that many in the history of English cricket. So he made twin tons against South Africa, but they took about the same time. We don't have a balls-faced count for those test matches, but time battered was about the same. I know people on Nerd Pledge like to get niche, but I think it's probably not a West Indies-Bangladesh test from 2012, <laughs> um, in which Kieran Powell made two of his three career hundreds. So I, I think I'm going to give this to another West Indies player, a slightly more celebrated one. So in the famous 1960-61 series when the West Indies toured Australia that involved the Tide Test at the Gabba and the uh, the attacking cricket, it, the Frank Worrell became a, a beloved star and the Frank Worrell Trophy was named after him and Richie Benno was captaining Australia and all of that. In the fourth of those fifth tests at Adelaide, they had Rowan Canai, one of the celebrated players of that era who came out and made a very fast 117 in the space of a couple of hours at the Adelaide Oval in the first innings. Uh, they bowled Australia out for a lower score and, and piled on more runs in the third innings and he made a much more sedate 115 which took about four hours. So a, a lower score that took twice as long but that set Australia 460 to win and they famously hung on with one wicket to spare where they had Slasher Mackay who we spoke about a couple of weeks ago on the show and the number 11 Lindsay Klein batting for about an hour and 40 minutes at the end to hang on for a draw which meant that Australia was able to win the series uh, in the fifth test so that is my guess for a 117 that involves twin tons and a very different approach is Rowan Canai in the 60-61 West Indies series. All I hear is match losing century. He hasn't left his side enough time to, to bowl Australia out the second time around there, has he? Oh, they had Batting plenty of time. They had all oh, the time well, in the know, world. Not, but, but not enough, evidently, given uh, they were able to, to see out Wes Hall at the end there with, you know, Mackay and Klein uh, taking a number of balls on the body and, you know, so goes the myth, but... 
Yes, mm. fair enough. Twin tons. And that would uh, um, be in keeping with another interest we've had on the show in the past. So 205 is our next number, Jeff. $2.05 or two pounds and five pence. We can now mm. um, process nerd pledges that way. At two euros and five euro cents, it might be. That's <laughs> the third currency, which is at your disposal uh, now on, on Patreon. Matthew Brown and Richard Turney. Now, no clue from Matthew, so I might... Uh, go to him first and we'll come back around and have a chat about Richards okay. in a moment. So 205 it gives me that, that space to gallop in. So 205, yeah, it's, it's a high score for Alan Border. That's what jumps out probably for most Australian cricket fans. He made that against New Zealand in 1987, one of his two double tons. Ted Dexter, his highest score was also 205. There's a, a fabulous interview in The Telegraph uh, this week that Nick Holt did with him. I think um, Dexter's now 85 years of age and kind of reflecting on a life so well lived and uh, yeah. what, a, what a great contribution he's made. And it's really interesting too that he murdered all of those criminals um, and, and never got caught in the end. You know, It's just truly extraordinary that Dexter got away with that. Um, <laughs> it's just a fine, fine operator. But... Yeah, he carved them up with the blade and he carved them up with the blade. He deserved to get caught based on the finale of that show. I'm not sure if you watched it all the way through to the end, but the last episode, and I didn't, but I went back to watch the last ep because I was told that it was the worst finale ever made. <laughs> I, pr- I promise you, it's just for the last scene alone, it's worth it. But how about Albert Trott? Albert Trott, he made 205 runs in, in five test matches. So you're thinking, yeah, whatever, 205 runs, why is that important? Well, Albert Trott's legacy and story is a belter. So he is one of only 14 players that played test cricket for both Australia and England, which uh, which, which in itself is interesting. But let's just mm. go through it here. So he goes from you know Melbourne to the Shield team to the test team to play against Andrew Stoddart's tourists in 1894-1895. He takes eight for 43 on debut with his fast off breaks, which he was bowling at the time. Goes on to make an unbeaten 38 and an unbeaten 72 with the bat. It's one of the greatest, if not the greatest, debut uh, for Australia in Mm -hmm. that win. They go on to win the Ashes. Now, despite that, he didn't get a bowl in the next Test match. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't get a trundle. He made 85 not out instead, which actually turns out to be his highest Test score. It gets really no better than that for him in Test cricket. The next year, they're off to England in 1896. His brother Harry's the captain and he doesn't get picked at all. Doesn't get a trip to England (laughs) in the touring side. So he says, sod it, I'll go on my own. And he finances his own trip to England and goes on the same boat as the Australian team that are heading out to play in that Ashes series. Few awkward dinners. (laughs) I expect so. I expect so. So that begins his sort of England adventure. So he gets over there and joins the ground staff at Lords initially so that he can play for Middlesex, which he goes on to do. The MCC uh, take him to South Africa. A couple of games that later on get called test matches. So they weren't defined as that at the time. That that gives him uh, that status as having played test cricket for, for both nations but it's more the first class stuff that he does in that period of time so in 1899 and 1900 in both of those years he takes over 200 first class wickets and you know makes in excess of 12 13 1400 runs but what he's most known for is in the 1899 season when playing for the mcc against the touring australians he hits monty noble over the pavilion I think most people would mostly know him for that with his with his three pound 
piece of tree that he took out to the middle, he launched Noble. First time he launched him into the, the middle balcony at Lords, and then the second time he went over the top and didn't he hit him into the groundsman's hut or, or something like that. <laughs> uh, so that, that was an MCC team that included sort of Grace and Ranji. Trumper was playing uh, for the Australians. It's just a month after that test match we've talked about before where in 1899, um, Trumper playing his first test match takes on Grace uh, playing his last there at Trent Bridge. Mm. But it sort of gets sadder after that. So after having this incredible career at Middlesex and for the MCC uh, and playing a couple of test matches for England, he sort of loses his touch and puts on a lot of weight and generally spirals towards the the end of his first-class career. And that ill health followed him into retirement. And and then tragically, uh, the day before the 15th anniversary of that gigantic six at Lords that he'll always be remembered for in 1914, he committed suicide. He shot himself. So that was in the July of um, 1914. So uh, he died at age 41 uh, but gee he he packed a lot in Albert Trott and his story as I say it's a it's a memorable one and it's very worth noting that also Albert Trott has the largest wingspan of any bird uh, could be up to two and a half meters so it's just 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 extraordinary stuff extraordinary areas from Albert there um, thank you for that story that was very nice I, I, I like the the Albert Trot story you've always got the the six over the pavilion punctuation mm. but yeah the um the story of the debut is uh, is is worth hearing How about again it? eight again. for 43 yeah. on eight for 43 on the boo Unbeaten 38, unbeaten 72, they so win. So 110 runs not 110 out 110 runs not out, 8 for 43, and doesn't get a trundle the next week. I mean, what are you going to do? <laughs> and then doesn't get picked on the next tour. All Crazy. right, thanks, buddy. Good bowling, champ. Good work <laughs> filling in, champ. Yeah, back to the seconds. And his See brother, you, bro. you know, and his brother's the one leaving him out of the team and then jumping on the boat himself. I mean, it's a, yeah. yeah it, well, I wouldn't a, want there to be any appearance of nepotism. <laughs> and, the, and the other 205, as we mentioned, Jeff, was Richard Turney, and there was a clue that came with it there is richard turney around every now and then i get a li- um richard turney's clue is that this is possibly the fourth most prominent number associated with this extraordinary match this game and two sessions of it in particular turned me from cricket enthusiast to obsessive one of the marvelous things about test cricket is that the insanely thrilling passengers passengers no passages um sometimes just appear out of nowhere it would be interesting if you had an insanely thrilling passenger <laughs> just like oh, as a bus driver i tell you what when this guy got on it was amazing <laughs> I remember we had an insanely thrilling passenger when we picked up a couple of hitchhikers in New Zealand some years ago, Jeff. Anyway, uh, the 205 uh, that I've gone for here was Azar Ali, uh, who... Ah, uh, yes. I mean, this isn't... I, I, don't think I've, I don't think I've quite nailed it, but it does meet the criteria on the basis that Azar Ali makes 205 that takes him four days to compile with so much of that 16, 2016 Boxing Day Test match at Melbourne... Uh, rained out. But the reason why it wasn't that important the number in the match is that um, Australia bat huge. Uh, they make 624 for eight in kind of no time at all, going at roughly five and over. Um, Warner makes a runner ball century. Smith makes a, an unbeaten 165. Stark hits 84 not out with seven sixes, which is a record for six hitting at the MCG. And in the final two sessions, where Australia bowl them out from nowhere on afternoon and evening five. So that's why I thought the two sessions kind of works and they win with, what was it, 20 minutes to spare or, or something like that. So it was a, a thrilling end to, to an otherwise kind of meandering test match at different points along the way. But the reason why it kind of works is that 
Azarelli made two oh five not out. So I mean, does it pa- does it pass? Yeah, I think that's good. I, I mean, it may not be the number, but it's a good option for the number because that was exactly the thing in that game where when Australia was still batting on the fifth morning it seemed like there was absolutely no way for a result in this test match. It just couldn't happen. And then it was Stark coming in and just going absolutely bunter with the uh, with the bat and smashing mm. all of those sixes. And that got Australia to, what, 160-odd in front. Uh, and then but having done that, but having actually given them that lead, he gave them something to bowl at. And then when he started taking wickets, reverse swinging it from around the wicket, bowling left arm around, big angle in and started exploding stumps and, and reversing the ball on the MCG pitch, then then you had this... Um, remember that race where Safraz Ahmed was out there batting and he was trying to get them to a lead so that it would take... a bit more time out of the match because the changeover right. would take a couple of overs and he was desperately slogging boundaries with the tail when they had about 120 on the board trying to get them up to 160 odd or whatever that uh, whatever that deficit was so that he could get them even 10 runs in front to try to take a bit more time out of the game and yeah so it, it was a test match that was rain and dull for a long time and then came to life in a couple of sessions. And it was one of the parts of that day, wasn't it? When Nathan Lyon woke up that morning, he saw the, the back of the Herald Sun reading that he was going to be dropped for the Sydney Test match. And then he went out to bowl two sessions at his disposal and took three wickets mm. after tea in a hurry, bowled absolutely beautifully, made sure that he was picked for the Sydney Test alongside Steve O'Keefe, and then went on to take all those wickets in India. And kind of the, the Nathan Lyon story um, goes in a very positive direction uh, throughout the course of 2017, where he takes, I think, 62 wickets in that calendar year, something like that. So, yeah, there was plenty going on. So maybe that's right, Richard. Maybe it isn't. Let us know. Thanks to Richard and Matthew for the double. Our next one comes in from Elisa Daly, friend of the show, uh, was named after the World Cup Daly, which was it's a very nice touch that she changed her name by deed poll, um, being such a fan of that show. And the number that Elisa has sent through is $2.11. So obviously you can move the decimal point around, you can take it out entirely, it could be 21.1, it could be 2.11, it could be 211, it could be 211,000, uh, but 211 in sequence, string them together, what does that tingle in your cricket brain, Adam? A couple of things. First of all, Elisa was with us in Manchester last year when Smith made his 211, so I reckon that is probably it. I'll, I'll state that for the record off the top. That Okay. This is probably going to be Steve Smith at Manchester last year, right? Given that, yeah, we, we managed to meet up with Elisa somewhere at some fairly reasonably reputable establishment. It was like a, a Mexican taco bar in Manchester, which is not something I ever really expected to happen. It was but, you really know, good. It was, it's always nice when you run into this. It was a really Smith. good night, yeah, and it was around the corner from a... From a uh, it was around the corner from sort of like a, a Manchester indie club where we ended up quite late at night oh, yes. um, afterwards. With up so on the it tables. was worthwhile. Um, yeah, I, I no, no, well. you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're confusing that with Leeds. That was um, that was Mojo's at Leeds. We ended up dancing on the tables. Anyway, it was a good tour last year. I missed 2019 <laughs> where you could do things like that. But 211 was the first double century made in Test cricket. Jeff Billy Murdoch, oh, yeah, uh, against England at the Oval in in 18. 18- 84, I've, I've mentioned it before. We've talked about that a bit in the context of the, the progression of the highest scores in tests. Yes. So in the, in the last couple of months, we've talked about that a bit. Yeah, and I've, I've mentioned in passing uh, a couple of years ago, a, a tremendous biography about Billy Murdoch was written, co-authored by Rick Sissons, who's a, a friend of mine, a fabulous cricket writer. So uh, if you are interested in learning more about the Murdoch story, that's where you can go. But I, I just thought that 
a couple of weeks ago, we we tapped into a, a thread that I think is worth exploring again. I reckon there's a bunch of Australian cricketers that played from the mid-50s until the end of the 60s that we don't know an awful lot about because the era was so shit. So because the era was poor... <laughs> We just kind of wiped the cricketers. So Garth mm. McKenzie's the, the the best example of that. When he retired, he was well. When he was left out of the Australian team, he was two wickets away from breaking, you know, the Australian record of two four eight. Yeah, I don't think people really know much about him. And another player that falls into that Slash category, McCullough. Ken Mackay. Yeah, that that he, he's another. Although I don't think he he quite reached the heights of McKenzie, nor did he reach the heights of Norm O'Neill. Now. There's a player we should know more about, I reckon. He, he debuted in 1958 and he was done by 1965. But, you know, starting as a 21-year-old, he was an Ashes winner straight away. He made three centuries in Australia's tour of India and Pakistan in 1950, 1960. And you think about, you know, the idea of making three centuries in one subcontinental tour. That, that's quite the quite the achievement. He makes 181 at the Tide Test in, in Brisbane. So that's obviously his finest hour. After 14 Test matches, he's averaging 68 at that point. In England in, in 1961, he's one of the most senior players in the team. Doesn't have a great Test series. He makes a century at the Oval, but it's on the broader tour where he absolutely dominates, averages 60-plus, makes nearly 2,000 runs on tour. And because of that, gets made uh, one of the Wisdom Cricketers of the Year in 1962. But then there's this big layoff. Another thing about cricket in that in that era was that it could be such a long time between tests. They did not play a test uh, for 18 months until uh, the summer of 1962-63. There was no one in Australia in 1961-62. In it was just shield cricket. So he missed that kind of really, that, that really important part of his career where he, where he was pretty much at his peak. But he was a super opinionated guy as well. And I mean, we, we've talked about opinionated cricketers in recent weeks who have found themselves <laughs> in trouble for what they've written in the paper. Well, our man, Norm O'Neill, um, accused Charlie Griffith, who was the West Indian speedster of the time, of being a chucker. And that landed him in hot water. He ended up getting left out of the team. And that was more or less the end for him. Uh, he, he didn't get picked to go to South Africa um, in 1966-67. And, and that was kind of it. But all up, 42 test matches, uh, for nearly 3,000 runs, an average of 46, six tonnes, 15 half centuries, an average of 51 in first-class cricket. I mean, Norm O'Neill, serious player, and he was admitted to the uh, Cricket Australia um, Hall of Fame in, in 2018, so he got that recognition there. But, yeah, I think if we have other numbers that relate to 50s and 60s cricket in Australia, I might I might come back to them in a bit of a series because <laughs> I, I feel like he's the kind of guy who, if he was a 70s player, we'd know a lot more about. Or had he been around in Bradman's era as well but it's that it's that bit in between or I think there's some there's some some work to be done in colouring in some gaps yeah and this is definitely your enthusiasm now it's it's Australian caps in sort of the 200s um, around the 50s and it's English caps in maybe the three sort of two and three hundreds where they're you know they're sort of early 1900s and they're they're you know yes. players who played two <laughs> tests but and yet somehow they all took about four thousand first class wickets played <laughs> <laughs> a million first class games uh, that's where we've got to Elisa uh, let us know if we're right with the initial guess the next one comes in it's one dollars ninety four and it comes in from Sean McGiven who is the first of our patrons. To to have been written by Metallica. 
you know, you've done the Sean McGiven. Oh. <laughs> Um, You're having yeah. quite the night, Jeff. You're having the violet crumble is messing with your head. You've had about five goes at gags like that so far. I'm not hey, persuading look, you. Go I, again. You got to you spend them as spend it as it comes in. You know, I've, never never save a joke. Just get them all out. Uh, the the violet crumble is it's extraordinary. It's like I never thought I could drink a violet crumble, but here we are. Keep an eye out. So the, so Sean's one, this is a cryptic one. It's one ninety four, it's a dollar ninety four, but it's also related to the number one ninety-five. And what he says is that there is a double connection between them, a case of history rhyming. And so I was trying to ponder what this meant and I was looking for maybe matches in which someone had made 194 and someone else had made 195 and so on. There's there's nothing obvious there and and maybe I'm it's it's like those cryptic clues where as, as soon as it's been solved for you it seems obvious but it's not up until that point. So I've got a couple of increasingly tenuous possibilities for this. Uh, one Cyril Washbrook, England batsman, made a score of 195 in the year 1948. 1948, of course, begins with 194. Mm. <laughs> Pretty good, no? <laughs> um, oh, well, <laughs> he, 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 whilst that might be true, I, I, mm. I, I, I'm looking for a bit more here. 195 in 194, open brackets, eight, close brackets. Uh, how about... At the Oval versus India in 2002, I think, Michael Vaughan made a score of 195. He reached his century off 194 balls, so 100 off 194 and then ends up with an eventual score of 195. Mm, mm, not terrible. Yeah. Also an important sort of uh, landmark in, in Vaughan's career. That was the last test match before they come to Australia and Vaughan makes... Three centuries in that Ashes series, six hundred plus runs. So yeah, I can I can kind of see that. And then if I'm looking for something to mirror it to, in Colombo a few years later, Michael Vaughan is opening the batting, I think, and he and Alistair Cook have a partnership in which their partnership reaches a hundred in one hundred and ninety four balls. And then in the same match, another player for the other team, Mahela Jai Wardner, goes on to make one hundred and ninety five. So 100 from 194 balls followed by 195 and then 100 from 194 balls followed by 195. It's a lay down misery. It's not. Um, look, we definitely haven't got it, but I like that, that was, uh, th there was a nice little bit of random symmetry that I did find in there, a bit of history rhyming. So, Sean, you can drop us a message and give us a clue to nudge us closer to the mark if, as we uh, are pretty confident, that's not it. And one last little suggestion that that is probably also definitely not it both Verenda Sawag and Brendan McCullum were out for 195 while trying to hit a six you'd probably remember both of these Adam there was Sawag at the MCG trying to hit Simon Kadic over Long Island yep. and there was McCullum against Sri Lanka when he was I think he was 195 off about 130 balls well on track for the fastest double ton and then hold out going for the last one so both of them if you're six short of a double century you'd be on 194 and then in the end they were both out for 195 and they were both out trying to hit a six is that is that is it, that's probably not it either, i think but, that's you your well, i think that's your best guess of the three yeah i like i like that the most as far as history rhyming if, mm. that that to me feels like it's best in keeping with the clue that sean set us but 
yeah, let, let's go back to Sean on that. I feel like we've got some more work to do, and that might be a nice one to revisit next week. We've got one more new number, though, to deal with before we come to some from previous shows, and that's from James Ryan, who's very generously pledged $6.33. Now, there are a few bits here, uh, Jeff, Mm -hmm. and I I wanted to start with uh, Sajid Mahmood. (laughs) So he was a 633rd England Test cricketer, and Uh I just wanted to bring to your attention, uh, and I popped it into our little shared document before for you to have a look at. I pulled it up. Yeah, Sajma Mood was writing a column, and I'll put this out on Twitter later. He was writing a column for The Guardian uh, through the uh, 2006-2007 Ashes series. And it looks like here, the tweet I've picked up anyway, Vish popped out something that Russell Jackson found, which are the headlines of Mahmood's columns through the course of the series, starting in November with, Forget the verbals and hectic schedule. I can't wait to get started. Column two, there's a real belief in the camp that Australia are there for the taking. Then next week, what looks to be the week before the Brisbane Test match, there's enough to focus on without worrying about the abusive crowds. They're still pretty upbeat, you know, on the front foot. Uh, After Brisbane, though, forget our Brisbane blip. We're much more focused this time. Okay, okay, I see where this might be going. After the Adelaide Test match, I can't remember ever being in a quieter dressing room. After uh, This might be before Perth or after Perth. Rumours of a rift in the camp is news to me. <laughs> then, um, before Boxing Day, I wondered what I was doing out there on the pitch. <laughs> the penultimate piece, which was written after the Boxing Day test match, was how it feels to be a little piece of warmth history. <laughs> And before jumping on the plane after they've been beaten 5-0 at Sydney, we are not a demoralised and dispirited bunch. We are stronger than that. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure, Sarge. I'm, I'm not sure. And what I do know is from that, that, that Sydney test match, uh, friends of mine, Kieran Gilbert and Brenton Speed, KG, who works, uh, he's one of the brilliant and diligent reporters who, who, who work at Sky in Canberra, an absolute gem. Uh, and Brenton Speed, who's one of the best sports callers uh, in Australia, they had a bet during that test match at Sydney watching Mahmood bowl and watching a young James Anderson bowl. And their bet consisted of who is going to take more test wickets. And KG backed in Saj Mahmood <laughs> and Brenton Speed had Jimmy. I hope I got that the right way around. But what I do know is that uh, one of the two, I think it was KG, was convinced that Mahmood would have a much longer and more productive career than James Anderson. <laughs> Not to be. So. Was there um, was there like a commission on, say, the difference, you know, between their eventual tallies? Because yeah. if there was, he's going to need an extra mortgage. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. Uh, there was one other six three three though, Jeff. Which I mean, it might be. Uh, this was uh, one that um, that I remember well, and I've been looking at recently. Actually, doing some research for a new project where India made six hundred and thirty three for five against Australia at Calcutta in nineteen ninety eight. We always talk about the two thousand and one um, Calcutta Test match as being one of the all time greats. Well. Three years earlier, Australia were fucking walloped. They, um, they, they really did cop a pounding. So it was so consistent from India. Lakshman opening the batting is sort of a sign of things to come at that ground, made 95. Navjot Sidhu made 97, so both openers fell just before 100, one of six half centuries in a row for, for Sidhu. 
Dravid batting at three made 86. Sachin makes 79. Then Mohamed Azruddin, the captain, comes in and plunders 163, including three massive sixes, I remember, at the end. Ganguly, 65. Meanwhile, for poor old, poor old Australia, Blocker Wilson playing his one and only test match, bowling in his one and only innings, 12 overs, none for 50 before the poor bastard broke down. Shane Warne, none for 147. Gavin Robertson, two for 163. And Michael Kasperwitz, the subcontinental specialist as he became uh, sort of over the years picked up one for 122 Greg Blewett was the most economical bowler taking one for 65 from 20 uh, and they ended up losing the test by an innings and 129 runs so that was probably in terms of the, the the disparity between home and away with Australia and India it was never more apparent than than the Calcutta Test match of 1998 well the 633 that you've missed is um very, very disappointing considering how much time we spent on the previous show, the weekly show, talking about the IPL retirement of S.R. Watson. Watto's best test bowling was six for 33. The, ah, of uh, course it was. The second of those Pakistan tests in England in 2010 when Pakistan were uh, travelling around trying to find somewhere they could play their home away from home games and uh, they'd Australia had won at Lords, where where Marcus North got on the honours board with a five for, and they were playing a second test at Leeds. Uh, it was the series where Steve Smith and Tim Payne both debuted, and Australia got rolled for eighty eight on a on a grassy wicket, and then Watto came out and took six for thirty three in keeping Pakistan to a pretty modest score second up, but um, Pakistan ended up squeaking home in a, in a small run chase. But it was also the series where Shade Afridi was the captain in the first test, having come out of retirement one of the many times. He'd been assigned as captain, then he played a horrible shot and holed out to deep mid-wicket while he was batting. Then he retired at the end of the test match and just said, no, I'm out. Oh, I, on that retirement, I should jump in and say that Jim tells that story brilliantly. It's a Jim Maxwell scoop. So uh, after play, Jim was interviewing Shahid Afridi for Test Match Special because, of course, you know they, they were covering it given the series was being played in England and Shahid Afridi just retired to gym just there and then and that was it <laughs> so <laughs> um, yeah but, but see of course that brought Salman Butt into the captaincy um, in charge of the young Muhammad Amir and of course that went really well uh, you know later in the uh, later in that summer when they were playing England and got busted for the, the spot-fixing stuff that saw Amir miss five years of cricket. And, of course, Watto's six for included getting Cameron Akmal and Mohamed Amir out. So you know you've had a quality um, five-wicket bag when you've got a pair like that out. <laughs> you know there's, it's beyond any sort of question or suspicion at that point. Uh, that's the end of the new numbers on Nerd Pledge. If you want to send us one, patreon.com slash the final word. Sign up, set your number. We will add it to the list. And I should say that we've received a bunch of uh, edited numbers in the last two weeks or so, which are which is fabulous. So if you're one of our existing uh, patrons and you want to edit your number, it means we have another crack at it on the show. And it well, to be crude, it means that story time will continue forever. We're enjoying that. So if you want to get involved that way. That's fantastic. And if you are new to Nerd Pledge, it'll mean you can also access that Stuart McGill live show that we mentioned off the top. Revisits, uh, Jeff, where we have to take the clues from numbers where we've been wrong and find a way to uh, the the promised land of, of a correct answer on story time. The first of those is five 
65, Niall Duxbury. We said James Anderson's 5 for 65 against India in 2011 at Lords because there was a Burnley link via Niall. And he replied and said we were, we, we were lured into a trap. He goes on and says, whilst Jimmy is indeed Burnley's favourite son and he did take 5 for 65 against India, there's another legendary English bowler to have represented Burnley Cricket Club. And, Jeff, that's all you needed. There is another one. And, in fact, he's a legendary England bowler who I mentioned only recently when talking about Clary Grimmett, who I haven't mentioned for a while. And I thought it's always good to get a bit of Clarence Grimmett onto the show, who, who took 216 test wickets. And at that point, that was the most in the world. He had got there by going past the record held by one Sydney Barnes with 189 wickets and Sid Barnes was a really a spinner who sort of bowled at medium pace he he had he had very long and clever fingers apparently and he could use them to do all kinds of um, strange things to the ball to make it cut and leap and spit off the pitch um, as he as he got a lot of deviation while basically operating as a seamer so he was a very difficult bowler to face and he's the bowler who still holds the record for the most wickets in a series ever he took 49 wickets in a series against South Africa and he skipped the last test match because he cracked the shits about how much they were getting paid on their per diems or something and refused to play in the fifth test so he played the first four and still has the record comfortably for any length of series with 49 wickets but the five for 65 that he took was in the 1901-02 summer when England came down to tour Australia. Australia ended up winning 4-1 in that series but England demolished them in the first test. There was a, a big ton in the first innings to acclaimed racist Archie McLaren who's the the England captain who refused to play against the Aboriginal bowler Jack Marsh and um, basically kiboshed Jack Marsh's chances of a further first class or international career. Jack Marsh played half a dozen games for New South Wales but then was never picked after McLaren refused to play against him in a, a tour match, a warm-up match. He was a very fast bowler, Jack Marsh. But yeah, in that test match, uh, Australia had to follow on after Barnes took five for 65, knocked them over for 168 in the first innings, and uh, they followed on and, and lost the match comfortably but bounced back to win 4-1. And I wonder how many clubs Barnes ended up playing for as a pro. If Burnley was one of them, famously uh, at Staffordshire, he was there for years sort of outside the formal county system but was a classic pro, and, that, and he, and he prioritised that above playing for England. He would have played a lot more if... If not for that, but um, Burnley was one of the clubs he played there for a couple of seasons. Three dollars ninety-two from Abby Singh, who is one of our patrons, who changed his number for us. We went with the three ninety-two that India made in a one-day international at Christchurch. You know, high-scoring, entertaining game uh, from two thousand and nine. Uh, when discussing it last week, Abby uh, replied that sadly we were nowhere close, and he gave us a clue that we needed to look at one-day international strike rate. Yes, please. So, who had a one-day international strike rate of thirty point? Two or thirty point two three, as he gave us one extra decimal point there. If we needed it to work it out, Jeff, you love strike rates. I do love strike rates, and I, I was right into this thirty nine point two three strike rate in one day international cricket. That being thirty nine runs per hundred balls faced. That being that if you played an entire ODI at that rate, you would make one hundred and seventeen runs in your fifty overs. Um, so it's not good. It's definitely it's already funny. Like before I even know who it belongs to, it's funny. But this belongs to the Cheshire Cat, Cheteshwa Pujara, the Pooj, the, the guy who batted for about a million years when 
playing for India in the Test Series a couple of years ago and is about to be back this summer to try to do it all again, uh, loves a slow test innings, doesn't get a gig in the IPL in which, you know, every <laughs> washed-up former India player is is able to hang around until 42, but Pajara can't get a go because he, he doesn't score fast enough. Doesn't play white ball for India, but he did get five one-day internationals in 2013 and 2014, a couple against Zimbabwe and three against Bangladesh. So really into the big time at that point. So to, to have a glance through the career of Pajara in ODIs, opened the batting chasing a small score against Zimbabwe, made 13 from 24 balls and then chopped on. Okay, I mean, that's not terrible, 13 from 24. Next game got clean bowled fourth ball for a duck. And then that was the end of the series because he was only picked in the fourth and fifth matches. Had to wait a year to get another go. Came in against Bangladesh, faced three balls, had a three-hour rain delay, <laughs> and then came back and got sawn off by a horrible decision to a ball hitting him high outside the line of the off stump for a duck. <laughs> so that was that was three games in. And then he got two other matches, which were both rain interrupted against Bangladesh. It was probably in monsoon season. And... Everyone in the Indian team was playing like absolute shit and he was just trying to hold the thing together. So in in a team full of single-figure scores, he had a game where he batted for more than an hour to make 11 and another where he batted nearly two hours to make 27. Um, and at the end of that, in a series where no one else could make a run, he was punted from the one-day team and never played again. It's always funny when you go through the Indian test team and you know, you're looking at their IPL careers and the fact that Pujara, nah, none of that. <laughs> Randy right, no trophy thanks. for me, boys. <laughs> Back to the seconds, Chad. <laughs> uh, thank you, Abby Singh, uh, for being such a fun correspondent with us as well. I'm glad we've sorted that out. 392, Chiteshwa Pajaro strike rate in one day. As, and Perfect. Uh, another wonderful correspondent is Mel Shawley. Jeff, we talked about her 610 on Wednesday. and that We went with uh, Graham Thorpe's uh, first-class average from 1997. As you do. Bit niche. Bit niche. Uh, she did say that it was a brilliant attempt, give, given the clue that we had, which was a, had to relate to that year. Instead, Mel adds that her 6.10 relates to runs in a game she was at in the mid-90s, which is one of her all-time favourite overseas tours. She never laughed or drank so much and made lifelong friends along the way. The game remains unique, not just because England didn't lose. In fact, we flippin' murdered them. And that was all I needed to know exactly what she was talking about. It was the famous test match at Bulawayo in 1996, where England and Zimbabwe drew with the scores level. And I reckon this is what... I mean, there are brilliant highlights on YouTube of the final day, and Mark Nicholas gives a... An excellent summation at the end when signing off, which I think we used on on calling the shots when when interviewing him. But uh, yes, this test match was played in a series where Zimbabwe did so well. They thrashed England 3-0 in the one day. And when I was in Harare a couple of years ago, people still talk about that when England came to town and, and they pumped them 3-0 in the one day. As well, this was a test match played just before Christmas, and and it was going all. Fairly normally, really. Zimbabwe made 376. England replied with 406. NASA made 100. Uh, then Zimbabwe made 234 in, in the second dig, setting England 205 to win. Nothing particularly strange about that to that stage, but just 37 overs, which was the complicating factor on the final day in quite a, a turgid kind of test in terms of run rates. Didn't have a long time to make the tally. But at one point, they're 154 for one and cruising with Alex Stewart 
and Nick Knight. But when Alec gets out, Heath Streak decides to start bowling very, very wide over the stumps through the last hour and denying Knight the chance to score at a, at a heavy rate. And the umpires were allowing this to, to continue, which led to a situation where they lost a couple of wickets and needed 13 from the final over. Knight smashes the third one over mid-wicket for six, but still they need three off the final ball. They get a couple... Knights run out coming back for the third and David Lloyd Bumble, the coach, is absolutely furious at the end, you know, falling one run short of winning the test match. Of course, it's a draw. They weren't bowled out, but the only time it's ended that way in test cricket. And he says at the press conference, we murdered them. We flippin' murdered them because he was furious about the way Mm -hmm. the the, the last session played out. David Hopps in The Guardian, our friend and colleague, wrote, England visit Victoria Falls today and it'll be a wonder if no one throws themselves off the edge. That's how he started his match report talking about how England ended up in this situation. Uh, the next test at Harare was a draw as well. So they finished the tour, two drawn test matches, and they lost the one day as 3-0 to Zimbabwe. So a really wonderful era for Zimbabwean cricket, which sadly peters out when we get to the new century. But um, they definitely had their time in the 90s, and, and one of their best moments was in 96 in that crazy draw at Bulawayo. <laughs> Very good, Adam. Um, our next revisit is Tom Stewart. And we've also had some correspondence from Tom Stewart, and I've done some digging and worked out we only have two Tom Stewarts, so we have the Tom Stewart with the 542 that's getting revisited, and the Tom Stewart with the 234. Tom Stewart 542, you were guessing about Alan Davidson's bowling figures in 1961 at Lord's. To which Tom replied, uh, it was one of the Tom Stewarts contacting us, uh, one of the many Tom Stewarts who, who may be following the show. I'm tempted to give it to you with the fascinating story of Ellen Davidson and the Battle of the Ridge. It's the great joy of this game to be completely surprised by the direction a number can take you through cricket history, and that was a match I had never heard of, so thank you. Uh, however, there was one feat I had in mind that wasn't discussed, My number referred to a batting average achieved by an Australian player, but not necessarily a career average, as someone who I will defend despite many asterisks some like to place against his name. All right, then. So 542, and as I've gone back and dug around through this, this is 54.2, I think, which is the average that Greg Blewett had on the South Africa tour in 1997, the one where he had the huge partnership with Steve Waugh, the 385 was it, that was also a number that came up a few weeks ago where we didn't connect that to the partnership, but Blewett made a a big double ton, the 214, his highest score, and then didn't really carry on with it through the series, 214, 13, 7, 37 and naught in his five knocks on that series, but that was still good enough to end up with a series average of 54.2. Is that it, Tom Stewart of the 542 fame? Yeah, I think that's a decent shout. The asterisk reference, which kind of hints at not outs, would be the only complicating factor there. Remember, sort of, there was a time, despite how well Michael Bevan was playing in the one-day team, that people couldn't mm. get over the fixation that he was not out more often than not because of where he batted in the order and thus his average didn't matter. I, I ponder whether it might come back to something like that. Not Bevan, of course, because he's a test player and, and he's not talking about a career average that so we're not talking about one day as anyway. But, but he did play uh, tests. So is, there a, is there a series where Bevan averaged 54.2? I, I, I sort of doubt it. The only series where Bevan may have had an average of 50 was his first in Pakistan in 94, uh, and that was only a couple of tests. So I, yeah, so I think we're, 
we, we might need a, a bit more guidance, which is fine because we can correspond with another of the Tom Stewarts. I incorrectly said um, last week that the other Tom Stewart, that we had been wrong about um, Alan Lamb and Bruce Reed from 1987. I misread his message. We were correct on that. And there is the third Tom Stewart as well. The tail end is Tom Stewart is out there and has circulated our conversation about um, Alan Lamb uh, to his uh, colleagues on Tailenders. So there is a third Tom Stewart. Can we get him to become a patron too? Well, time will tell. I, I hope so. But uh, but the other Tom Stewart, the, uh, the the 534 Tom Stewart, also sent us a message to, to say that, you know, to, to confirm that you were correct with your Alan Lamb guess. So this is Tom Stewart 234. Yep. which was the score that England made in a test match where Alan Lamb made 17 off the last over to win it. And so Tom Stewart, 234, wrote us that, that, that note to say that he was there on that often-to-be-repeated night. Uh, and he says, One other memory I have is of a slightly older local boy sitting near me telling me towards the closing stages, you may as well start supporting Australia now. England are not going to win. Only being six years old, I remember wondering, can you do that? <laughs> is that how it works? <laughs> but if I was ever really tempted by the idea, it was soon washed away by the last overhitting in Australia's poor fielding. So there we go. All of our Tom Stewarts have had a go on the show this week. Superb. Thanks to all the Tom Stewarts. We, we like to finish with a couple of numbers we just got right and, and other correspondence. Uh, one of those was 462 from Sandy Sanford. Uh, we said Hooks and Phillips, that partnership, which was, of course, relevant uh, again this week, uh, thanks to Will Pekofsky and Marcus Harris. But we also mentioned in passing that it could be the number of deliveries that Glenn Maxwell's bowled so far in Test Cricket. And Sandy said, no, no, that's it. Forget about the partnership. You were spot on the first time talking about uh, the balls that Maxie's bowled. And, and that aligns with us having had Dan Liebke on the show that week, Sandy said, because Liebke, of course, is the man who invented Maxwell ball. So I'm glad that tied together really nicely there. We were also correct, Jeff, or you were correct, I should say, that um, Shane Watson's average for Tasmania of 42.9 was Peter Dowling's number. Ding, ding, ding. Third time lucky. She was... Uh, Very happy with that. She's going to edit her number again. Thank you, Peter. And then we had uh, a a number of pieces of correspondence around kids and cricket, and I just thought it was worth going through a couple of those to finish, Jeff, because they were really nice. The first was George Norman, who wrote to us that he wanted to answer my question, when's the right time to buy your child's first cricket bat? Uh, He says, from personal experience, it's never too early. Many years ago, our son was born in the middle of December. Two weeks later, his grandfather gave him a bat for Christmas from which their relationship has grown. And I know that some of his best memories are taking his grandson to the cricket with him at Lord's and my son wearing ridiculous borrowed clothes to gain access to the pavilion. So this Christmas, bat for Winnie, don't wait, which I thought was just lovely. (laughs) Very nice. There's a message that you got from Matt McGann who sent you a video message of the backyard net that he's built because his daughter, Chloe, is... Uh, in her teenage years and well on the way to the ACT Meteors team are currently playing under-16s for Westies in Canberra, which is the the club that you always like to talk about playing at with Nathan Lyon back when he used to bat in the top six sometimes uh, out at Wests and, yep. and give it a whack. Yep, yep. He was uh, the skipper at a very young age there, Nathan, and, and uh, 
and Ganny was one of the senior players as well. And uh, yes, it looks like there's going to be another generation of that family coming through ACT ranks sooner rather than later with his daughter. That's a lovely setup he's got there. He's built it down the side of his house. He's laid some asphalt, some some synthetic over the top, and you know, absolutely perfect. It's inspired me actually to work out whether I might be able to do something in our backyard in the future. Time will tell. And the last note in our triptych is from Keith, who's who's on the bargain hunt. He says, "My daughter has recently started her run in the local under eleven club cricket scene in Sydney." This has led me down a cricketing rabbit hole in search of appropriate sun smart headwear. I ended up stumbling across the World T20 uh, T20 World Cup official website where all the merch is, where you can get the official Australia floppy yellow hats for two bucks fifty, a bargain in anyone's <laughs> language. I figured there are a few final word listeners who have the same love of the floppy short form hat, which seems to have slipped since its heyday of the late 90s, although Adam Zampa still rocks it whenever possible. Now, this relates to something that we were talking about on the show some months ago, which was what happens to all of the merch from the... Uh, T20 World Cup that will no longer take place, the men's one. The interesting part in that is that they'd they'd got the merch together for the two World Cups, the women's and the men's, um, and had the same stuff for both. So they'd managed to move a decent amount of it during the women's tournament. And then, you know, whatever was left, the, the stocks weren't replenished. But it is being flogged for bargain basement prices where, you know, hoodies and shirts and stuff all for, you know, probably 10% of what the original cost was, like five or 10 bucks a throw, because there's not a great deal of demand probably for merch from a tournament that that got cancelled so that is up there we'll, we might put the link in the show notes and you can go and raid the last few yeah. sri lanka caps or um you know some west indies polos well yeah we'll stimulate some demand here on the final we will put this this link into the show notes and um look we know that cricket australia need a few bucks at the moment having missed yeah. out on having the chance to host this tournament let's help them out and, and buy um, some merch out of their fire so we'll pop that into the notes and Jeff, I think that's a, a nice place to leave it. We've done a power of work there in terms of new numbers, revisited numbers and some, some lovely notes as well. We'll take a break. And after that, it'll be myself and Daniel Norcross from earlier in the year talking to Jared Kimber. The Night Watchman, it's not just the bowler who comes in instead of a batter. It is the classiest cricket quarterly in the world. It may be the only cricket quarterly in the world, but it's a very good one. Lots of long-form writing, lots of uh, strange meandering ideas. It's the place where you put the longer cricket essay that doesn't necessarily fit in a more regular publication. And because the Night Watchmen have a relationship with us, it means they can offer you the publication for a hefty discount. Uh, there are a secret little final word code to get you 20% off whichever Night Watchman products you want to buy. They've got their best of the first five years special edition, which is their greatest hits kind of compilation. Uh, they've got their new issue 32, which is coming out in early December, or you can get the whole 2020 collection, the uh, the four issues that have come out over the course of the year. And if you want to give somebody something nice for Christmas, uh, a bit of long form reading in a beautifully presented print volume is a pretty good uh, way to go. Yeah, it's a great option for Christmas for cricket lovers, isn't it? So the Wisdom Quarterly, as you mentioned, Jeff, it, it's not just sort of how pretty Steve Smith's cover drive is, although Steve Smith doesn't have a particularly pretty cover drive, come to think of it, but it, it's more the, the those those pieces of writing that you are allowed to, uh, where you are allowed to have a, a really decent gallop. So I wrote an essay a few years ago about the 
origin story of why Jerusalem is played uh, when the England Test team play, for example. And I was given a few thousand words to explore that idea. And I mean, Daniel Norcross, I remember writing about the history of dice cricket, and we were talking the other week about Jonathan Lou's incredible um, fan fiction. No, you wouldn't even call it that, would you? It's the reimagined Shane Warne mural, and if it really happened, uh, how would have it been so? And pieces like that, which fit perfectly into the Night Watchman tradition as the Wisdom Quarterly. TFW20 is the code, and a great option for, for cricket lovers over the, the holiday period, Christmas and so on. Of course, there's Wisdom Cricket Monthly as well, which is all part of the same family. We've got our enduring relationship with that magazine. We'll have that in the show notes as well. Um, six editions for 10 quid or for 15 Australian dollars, which remains a fantastic deal. A new edition of the magazine on shelves at the moment. So The Night Watchman or Wisdom Cricket Monthly, fantastic publications at a great price. Uh, thanks to uh, them for being involved with us here at The Final Word. And a good option as we run up to Christmas. Hi, I'm Isha Gua and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. To begin our conversation, Jared Kimber tells us the story of how he went from being a car park attendant in Melbourne to writing his blog Cricket With Balls and eventually to the UK where he entered the press box. 2007, I was at a footy game with a mate. It was a blowout. Uh, it was uh, Brisbane Lions versus Collingwood. We both got bored and I was talking him through how he could do his basketball blog better and how it would appeal to fans online. And he was looking at me going, if you've written blogs before, why have you never done a cricket blog? And I honestly had no... It just hadn't occurred to me. I was trying to write films and novels and it just hadn't even occurred to write about cricket. So I started a blog and it turned out that writing in a style that was, uh, I don't know, well, that one of the early comments called it Chuck Pulinak meets Richie Benno, um, which is probably a fairly apt way of looking at how I am as a human being. Although they're obviously very talented men, I wouldn't want to quite be uh, at their level. Yeah, and so I started writing about it and it turns out if you take the piss enough and show a fair bit of cricket knowledge, people actually start to they start to engage with it. And then Australia played India in the Monkey Gate, the Bastard Monkey Gate series. And I happen to be the person who made fun of the Indians and the Australians at the same time. All the Australian press, really, other than Roebuck, went really strong for Australia. And all the Indian press went really strong for India. And I was the one going, if, you, if you're an Indian captain and you do a deal with Australians after the entire history of cricket, expecting them to suddenly be honest with low catches and things, like, you know, more fool you. And then obviously made fun of Australians as well. And my blog just took off. It just, it literally went from... I can't remember the numbers now, maybe 70 people a day being on the blog to 500 a day. And then suddenly, you know, people were reading from all around the world. It was quite big. There's a guy called Ed Craig, who was the deputy editor of Wisdom Cricketer. And he was just like, if you come over there, it's probably worked for you. No one's ever done what you've done before. Like, you know, you're writing in a way that no one has ever written. And you got to remember, I wasn't even really writing as myself. I was just it was like a character I'd created because I didn't really expect anyone to read this. So I just had fun with it and it, it went, uh, it went ballistic. And next thing you know, I'm, uh, I was working, I was actually, I was a car park attendant. I'd worked in factories and call centers, but at that stage I was parking cars in, in the city by day. And at night I had my own film production company and we were literally making promotional videos for the Pope's arrival in Melbourne. And I'm an atheist and not a big fan of the Catholic Church as a general rule. And I was in one of the Catholic buildings and there's just, there was dead Jesuses around me everywhere, right? It's 2 a.m. I'm in a Catholic building on my own trying to edit this promo for the 
Pope. And it was also, it was like World Youth Day or something. And it was like every image that they'd given us was like an 83-year-old Italian grandmother, you know, praising the Pope. And I somehow had to like cut it to a hip-hop beat to make it cool. And at that stage, that's when I think Ed Craig had emailed me going, look, if you come over, there's a career for you in cricket writing. I didn't quite take him seriously, but I was quite lucky. At that stage, there was quite a bit of money to be made on blogs, like not enough enough to really live on in London, it would turn out, but certainly enough that I thought maybe I could give this a go. So, you know, I move over to the UK and I remember specifically, like the cricketer got me accreditation and the cricketer were terrified that I was going to offend everyone in the press box by the way I dressed because I wore a cap was one thing. I, I shit you not. That's how conservative cricket was at that stage. Me wearing a cap was an actual issue that was discussed between ECB people and Wisden cricketer uh, as it was then and how I dressed. And I was like, I just dress like me. It should be pointed out at that very time, I was actually also helping out with a homeless charity. And the first time I turned up to help out with a homeless charity, they did say, not not yet. We're actually uh, letting people in later. And I had to tell them that I was not one of the homeless people. I was there to feed the homeless. So maybe fair play to Wisden uh, looking back on it. But yeah, so I'm in the UK. I remember Wisden have got me press accreditation. And I stroll into the Oval because uh, I'm living around the corner from the Oval. Uh, my first game was like a Pro 40 game, which makes me sound like 100 years old because like, you know, when was the last time anyone talked about 40 over, limited overs cricket? But that was the game and I was there and there was this old journalist behind me who slept from about the 15 over mark of the first innings to about the 25 over mark of the second innings, taps me on the shoulder when he wakes up and says, so young man, could you uh, take me through what happened? And I was just like, is this it? Is it? This is ridiculous. Like... No one, the people, there was like four of us in the press box, one person asleep. It just seemed so bizarre. And so I think just because I paid attention and stayed awake and started writing and I did it in a way that no one had ever done it before, for good and bad. Some of the early stuff I wrote was dreadful, dreadful stuff. But I was writing four times a day. I was writing about global cricket at a time when no one wrote about global issues. Everyone was writing about their own country. And I come in and I've got, you know, hot takes about the Bangladesh captain. And, you know, I know the backup plays in the West Indies and all these sorts of things. And I'm talking about Ray Price, uh, you know, and not many people to this day talk about Ray Price. So it, it just, everything sort of came together. And then next thing you know, I'm kind of in the industry and this Test Match Sofa happens. And by the time Test Match Sofa came around, I probably probably had, I think 2009 anyway, I would have had something like 300 to 400,000 individual readers on Cricket with Balls that year. That's how big that blog got. Right place, right time. Blogs took off. Twitter was taking off. And I was writing about the global game in a way that no one else did. And I just sort of swept through. And there was a lot of luck involved as well, right? you know, and uh, happy to take that luck as a white man with my privilege. Jared, describe your first experience of being involved in Test Match Chauffeur. What did it look like? How did it feel? And were there parallels between that and what you were doing with Cricket with Balls, given they were kind of growing side by side? So 2009 Ashes, I'd thought about doing something sort of filmy or commentary-wise already, and I'd actually started doing my own commentary. Like, I would commentate on my own, like the like the county guys do, essentially for two hours until my voice would go because I'd never even broadcast before. And you, until you broadcast, you realise that you put a lot more into your talking than you do in normal talking, as we found out in a uh, World Cup game when I, had, I lost my voice and tried to commentate for you, Colo. So there's certainly, you know, there was a lot in it. So I was doing two-hour stints and then Test Match Sofa had sort of started to bu- bubble up. And because I knew of almost every bit of cricket online by that point, I saw Test Match Sofa arrive and I was like, look, 
I'm not going to be able to broadcast on my own. I can't be bothered really recruiting people in and working out how to do this all correctly. But if they ask me to get involved, I might pop in and see what they're like. So Dan was actually overseas. I think he was in Denver um, or certainly he was in Colorado or he was in, he was somewhere in America. And so the producer, Tom Clark, contacts me and says, look, we need someone to come in. We don't have many cricket voices, you know, a lot of sort of semi-amateur people, your style matches our style. You know, we, they were being irreverent, I was being irreverent, but there was obviously, you know, a proper cricket background of both. So he gives me the address and I turn up at this house and like, you know, this is Dan's house, isn't it? And you don't, until you've been to the sofa the first time, especially in those early days, you don't realise, like, Dan's house is like a flat in a big block, if you know what I mean. So you sort of, you come in, you've got to find the right number on the thing, and then you've got to walk through this weird communal hallway, you know, and you expect a grandmother to be coming out, you know, with her puppy or something at that point. It doesn't feel like a normal place. And then you go in, and at that stage, there was just this random collection of human beings that I could only, the only way you could really truly explain what the sofa was like is... It was like going to a dinner party where no one really knew each other and there was like one central person who invited all these people. You've got the, there was a random posh guy with a really hot younger girlfriend that made no sense to me. There was uh, Tom Clark who was, you know, but Tom Clark is like every person I've ever met from the theatre. This sort of a feet overly affectionate lovey, lovey type person. Then I, th- I reckon the bear might have been there. So Nigel Walker might have been there. Soph was there. And Soph's the incredible person, but she's right in your face, this larger than life character. It was such a bizarre place to go into. And then they told me nothing about the commentary and I'd listen to maybe half an hour of it. I've more been following them on Twitter and reading articles about them than going in. And suddenly I'm on air with a bunch of random people I've never met. And they also haven't told me the very, very important thing. I didn't realize if we were commentating for TV or for radio. So like my first commentary stint, I was like, I wasn't explaining what was happening. So if you were listening, it would have sounded truly bizarre. You've got people smoking, all kinds of things um, around me. There's beer being passed to me left, right and centre. And the first time I was in here, I reckon I was on Kit from the BBC with his, I, I assume, girlfriend at the time. She didn't talk for like 25 minutes. Kit was chatting to me. And then Tom Clark was such an interesting guy. He kept saying that me and Dan were going to be enemies because we were both going to be like fighting to be like the biggest cricket nerd on that show. And the, and the thing is that me and Dan both took such a, uh, such a personal insult on that that we decided to be best friends. And so we, from the moment Dan turned up, we just sort of hit it off. And then once you worked out what the, the rhythm of it was, it just sort of became something. It was more like people chatting at that stage than a proper broadcast. But my, I think probably early on, maybe the second or third day I was on Test Match Sofa for tea, I gave a, a masterclass in swearing. And it was 20 minutes of swearing and all the swears, all the swear words were there. Soph was involved. It was me and Soph. And I reckon, I'm pretty sure Dan listened to that on his way back from the airport with his uh, father in the car. And his father must have been thinking, this is, this is the thing that's going to change Norcross's life. Uh, an Australian swearing really loudly over and over again. And it turned out it was. Yeah, it was actually uh, my dad's flat. We'd driven back from the airport. We'd been in Colorado and a plonked him off in, in the flat pretty much all alone with the uh, test mat sofa and we could hear you and Soph swearing constantly at uh, uh, then the cleaner pitched up and uh, was hoovering around while various four letter words were being screamed at top volume because my dad was fairly deaf so we had to have it on pretty loud it, it, yeah that was quite the thing now you were pretty much 
the only one of us, though, weren't you, who had been involved in cricket. It was sort of like almost like a professional. We were sort of all amateurs and you had your blog and you were sort of felt like you were kind of working in it. Yeah, it was it was a very weird time. So Creole Balls in 2009 had massively taken off. It was It was to a point where... I kind of had to work out if I was going to become a real journalist or if I was going to try and monetize cricket with balls. And at that stage, I think the online advertising kind of dropped off a little bit. So I was using Test Match Sofa in a way of basically going, I don't know if I'm ever going to get into broadcasting, but I'm going to be watching these games at home. So I might as well come in. And also, I'm very big on sort of groupthink and communal thinking. So you've got, you know, Nigel Walker, who's a really good club cricketer, but knew basically nothing about the the international game. You had someone like yourself, Dan, who knew a lot about the history of cricket and was starting to learn a lot about international cricket. But probably when I came on, that wasn't your speciality either. And then you had what was a lot of sort of very England-centric people coming on. So my thinking was, I could sort of expand my knowledge of what, normal cricket fans are thinking and Test Match Sofa had them on air and they also had them through Twitter. I'm going to be watching it anyway and at the same time I can then broaden my thinking and you know I, I'm not a huge English cricket fan. I sort of looked at English cricket as an irrelevance and a nonsense because uh, I grew up in the 80s and 90s and I could do that. So to be able to, you know, go back with that and to, and to use Test Match Sofa that way and then also little things like if you look at you know, uh, I probably met George Dobell the first... Actually, I probably met George Dobell the first time in a press box, but we probably got to know each other a little bit through Test Match Sofa. Andy Zaltzman, I'm pretty sure the first time I met Andy was on uh, Test Match Sofa. We brought John Norman in early on, who I now have a radio show with on TalkSport. Like, there was a lot of people. And then you're meeting, you know, cricketers. And, uh, you, you know, I think I interviewed James Taylor very, very early on for Test Match Sofa. So, you know, you had the opportunity to say, you know, we've got this thing, you know, early broadcast things. And I, and I remember having a conversation with someone. I wrote an article for Crick Info not long after I started with Crick Info about how there was this ridiculous war between Test Match Sofa and Test Match Special and that it was complete nonsense. And someone said, well, you, you know, you, it's all well and good for you to say that. You made money off Test Match Sofa. And I was like, I actually never made a dollar. Dan, you offered me a percentage of the company at one stage. And I said, eh, I, it, it, I don't need to do that. Let, let that, you know, let that go to someone else. I actually made more money off the BBC and doing stuff with them than I ever did with Test Match Sofa. But I, I saw it as a different thing. I saw it as a work experience system of learning how to broadcast. Uh, we, we made podcasts, Dan. If you remember, we actually did retro ball-by-ball commentary of George Hurst and uh, Wilfred Rhodes. We'll get them in singles. We did the Bodyline Adelaide test. So we were creating con- uh, content like that. And then, you know, I think I knew Ian O'Brien, um, for instance, through um, Twitter first, but him coming into Test Match Sofa and staying at your house and us going out and drinking and making podcasts together and all those sorts of things, you get, I got to know him better. So then you get to, you start to get to know cricketers, so you understand how to work with cricketers better, and cricketers would pop up on, on the sofa and little things like that. You know, it, it all sorts of, it starts to build, if you know, if you know what I mean, and that's what it did. So... I would learn more about broadcasting. Even someone like Tom Clark, who we lo- love to make fun out of, you know, he was a very good producer in many ways and he would put things together and Dan, you have a brain. So suddenly I'm thinking about things from an audio point of view and a production point of view and I'm learning how to use my voice. I, you know, if you, I, I made podcasts before Test Match Sofa, but I didn't really understand what my voice was. And I mean that in a very literal sense of how to speak, but also in a you know, how does Jared Kimber, what's his, what's his thing when he talks on, uh, online or on microphone? 
all those sorts of things I learned. So I was using Test Match Sofa in a much different way than a lot of the other people were. You look at some of the people that came through, they were just like, isn't this great? We get to commentate cricket. Whereas I was like, I can learn some stuff here and I can really build the brand and I can work out what works. And if you remember, most of our conversations back in those days were about how to grow Test Match Sofa, how to make it better. And my biggest worry was that you would pull it too much towards respectability because I thought we'd actually found a really good niche of being the alternative cricket commentary. And I I was afraid that it was going to be pulled towards BBC Light. And uh, that was what most of our arguments were about. Yeah, in those early days, you know, had a lot of people coming and going, lots of kind of random uh, people. But we started to find a consistency of noise. I mean, before it had been pretty random. When, when do you reckon that was? Where we, we started to have kind of basically the same commentators on each time. I think the big change for me was when we did the Bangladesh series and it was overnight and it was Manny, Norcross and me, um, you know, doing the commentary together. And and I, I think what happened was we. I think the game started at 3 a.m. and maybe, you know, went through to 10 a.m. or 11 a.m., because it was Bangladesh, no one else wanted to do it. But for me, it wasn't a big problem. My girlfriend was going to be asleep anyway, and I wasn't going to see her much in the morning. So as far as I was concerned, I might as well be there overnight and then sleep during the day, and then I'd see her in the night and come back. But having three people commentate that, I think all of us really sharpened our skills. We had to learn what was entertaining. We had to learn about pauses and speed control and everything. And for me, that was when Test Match Sofa went from basically people chatting to really good broadcasting. And it was still irreverent and it was still nuts. And, you know, I mean, Norcross and I once did a whole segment in the middle of a one-day match about moon cups because we just found out what a moon cup was. And we literally spent, I don't know, 40 minutes talking about moon cups, how they worked. And the first 20 minutes before we'd Google it, we were just, it was our imaginations talking about what a moon cup was. I honestly thought it was like a wine glass that hung down low. I had no idea what a moon cup was, um, but we went into great details about this sort of stuff and you could do it. But then what you had, and there was a bunch of us, and you know, Nigel Henderson would come in around that point as well. You then had four, what I would say, international quality ball by ball people. So yes, it was crazy and you had jingles and you had, you know, random fans that would come on and had no idea what they were talking about. But then you'd get, you'd still have the flow of professional broadcasting because by that point, we'd done our hours. We knew how to broadcast cricket. And we could, you know, you could have a, you could put me on with a random guest and Dan put me on with some incredibly random guests, including, I believe, at one stage, he brought an investor on to broadcast with me. And the whole idea was I was supposed to butter him up. And I, like, he came up with a bad cricket take and I just cut him down. But, you know, you'd be put on with these random people and you had to make them interesting. So suddenly it's not just people chatting and uh, whatever. It's now a cricket broadcast where we also had to do the other thing. We didn't have the soundtrack of the cricket. So we almost had to be more entertaining and more interesting than a normal cricket broadcast. The crowd wasn't helping us. There, there was no There was no sound effect. So it became... Almost a performative thing, but with, in, with really good ball by ball. And by early 2010, we kind of nailed that. And then throughout 2010, I think we got better and better. And then 2010-11 is when my career took off. I went and did the Ashes. Um, you know, I started off doing uh, a video series called Two Pricks at the Ashes. Uh, that became the Two Chucks on ESPN. For some reason, they didn't want the name Two Pricks at the Ashes. And then when we came back, we did the World Cup. Uh, and that was basically the last time I think I was ever massively involved. But by that point, the World Cup, I remember, you know, 2011, there was some incredibly 
good broadcasting going on by that point. And the guests at that point were next level. And from then on in, I was never a, really a commentator on it. But it was it was at a level then when you could you could literally decide which one you wanted to listen to, TMS or Test Match Sofa, based on you know your personal preferences. Up until that point, it was a bit it was a bit fan chatty, if you know what I mean. But by then, we were completely nailing it. People were coming in. And um, I think for a bunch of us, we became, you know, we became cricket broadcasters in that period between probably late 2009 until the beginning of uh, 2011. You and I talked quite a bit, didn't we, about how in those broadcasts, they were were quite thin noise. It was just a couple of voices. And that's really where we introduced the jingles, the music, and, and crucially, you know, the audience interaction, sort of bringing another voice in from outside. That sort of that kind of made a big difference in it to the overall broadcast. Yeah, I, we basically because we had to create a atmosphere. Jingles were brought about, and so we had a mu- musicians coming in. We had people making them at home, and then we had Twitter as well. Because again, you would be sometimes you would be sitting with a person who was not particularly made to be broadcasting. And it might just be you and them, depending on the game or the situation. You didn't always have, you know, an incredible, um, an extra voice coming in. So you had to create them. So you, if you had a jingle, you could play a jingle. And if you had Twitter, you could bring them in. And for a lot of the broadcasters, I think they learned how to broadcast on air by reading tweets out. Now it got completely out of control. And there was, I remember there was a huge blowback against me because I would read about once in every 12 tweets. If a tweet was worthy of going on Test Match Chauffeur, it went on. I wasn't reading a tweet from five overs ago where the story had moved on. Whereas there are other people who are so nervous about being abused by uh, the Test Match Chauffeur ultras on Twitter that they'd read out everything. And it got bad. And the same with the jingles at times. You know, I met Mark Steele um, doing that. And me and Mark don't know each other particularly well. But I could, I f- you got to a certain point with a comedian like Mark or, or, or Zaltzman, even if you weren't talking to them about cricket, you could actually sort of come together with an atmosphere and that sort of give and take. And whether it was with a jingle or Twitter or with a comedian or even just a random guest that had come on, we started to create what was a, a broadcast that had very high quality cricket at times but the rest of the time we were dragging people back in it was a it was a very interesting show to listen to back then and the biggest problem could be at times especially on the weekend that the quality would drop off a little bit i found whereas i think the further we went and the more that we created this sort of entire wall of of commentary and sound that didn't happen anymore and then what you had was is you had a proper professional cricket broadcast but a prof- professional cricket broadcast, very much in the, in the same way that my career was nothing like. There's, you know, my career is nothing like Neville Cardis's or Ray Robinson or you know CLR James or any of those other people. Test match show was nothing like any broadcast in cricket that had come before it either. It was really a mishmash of a bunch of different things. And had the technology not been available, had all these things not been available, it really came together at the right time. And I think there was just a bunch of us that were coming through that had a different view on cricket and we were able to create a, a, a package and a, and, a, and a thing, whether it be as a writer, as a social media person or as a commentator. And it all came together beautifully at this time. So you could play a ridiculous jingle that was made by someone in a, in a MIDI format with them singing in their bathtub and you could still make it fun and it still felt like cricket. It might not have felt like Test Match Special, 
but it did feel like you were with a bunch of cricket people. And that's why it was such a special thing. And, you know, there's a certain point where the cricket knowledge had to get better and all those things had to get better. But the very basic thing was that we were able to do this because of a mix of the right people available at the right time, the technology, and then creativity. Cricket broadcasts hadn't been that creative for a long time. It was a creative space. I look at it even as a writer now, and I'll probably go back one day and write a really long, you know, 20,000 word piece on Test Match Sofa. It was one of the most creative spaces I've ever been to. It was like when you go to, you know, one of those open desk things in Soho, except all the people weren't complete pretentious tossers. Some of the peoples were drunks. Some liked other substances. Some were ridiculous. I mean, some of Dan Norcross's friends are just ridiculous human beings. But you put all those people together with a couple of, you know, a Kent super fan and some random Aussie guy who happens to know a lot about cricket and a couple of comedians and suddenly you're bringing together what was a very very special and unique thing that probably couldn't be created the next thing that is created like test match sofa will be something completely different and probably just as horrendous hopefully it will smell better because i mean we haven't talked about this but geez there could be some pretty ordinary odors in that room when we were recording We've touched on the 10, 11 Ashes as a really important time for the sofa. You were experiencing that the same way that I was as far as being in Australia and on social media and Twitter at the time where it was really taking off, where sofa was ubiquitous, really. Uh, I mean, there was Gideon going on offsiders wearing a test match sofa t-shirt and generally we were just kind of hearing it everywhere. When you were in Australia, how did you interpret that as test match sofa started to sort of really own its place in the cricketing public? I think you've got to understand how conservative the sort of cricket press still were in 10-11. So we're over there, you know, in the ashes. Me and Sam have got a show called Two Pricks at the Ashes. And there is like, we're getting all the journalists to come on this show. And at the same time, those journalists are saying, we're not proper journalists and we don't deserve to be in the press box. And yet some of them are also listening to Test Match Sofa, you know, because you you could do that. And I think it was on a slight delay. So it was quite tough to listen to it from the ground. But some people were doing it as well. And you suddenly realise that, you know, two pricks at the ashes and everything that I was doing on cricket with balls and the sofa, they were just rising up and they were just becoming a part of this. And it didn't matter how conservative it was and how much it was looked down by by some of the, uh, you know, the establishment. It was certainly something that was happening. And, you know, my friends were, were starting to listen to the sofa and these aren't hardcore cricket fans either, you know, and Gideon Hay going on offsiders in a cricket with balls t-shirt one week and a test match sofa t-shirt a couple of weeks later. It was like this... One of my favourite musicians is a guy called Tex Perkins who um, is from Melbourne and he talks about this beautiful time in Australian music when the 5% of fucked up weird shit rose to the top. And I would talk about this with Dan all the time. I said, if we hold our ground and we keep creating, we are going to be that 5% of fucked up weird shit because no one else is ever going to be able to do this. If we just hold our ground and we don't sell out and we don't take the you know the wrong paths and we, we keep pushing this, we're going to be able to do this and we're, you know, Looking back, people, you know, historians and archaeologists will be like, how the hell did Dan Norcross and George Dobell and Jared Kimber and Andy Zaltzman and all these random weirdos make it when there were proper newspaper guys who struggled? And and it was because it was the right place at the right time. So 10-11 Ashes, it sort of exploded. I mean, to get NASA Hussein on a show called Two Pricks at the Ashes, you know, sort of tells you everything. And the sort of people that the Test Match Sofa were getting on their broadcast at that stage... It's ridiculous and it shouldn't have happened and yet it did and it was sort of a magical time and that was the point where I went, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to make a career because it was tough in 2010 and I thought in 2010, I actually went to my girlfriend at that time, actually she would have been my wife by then and said to her, if you want me to go and get a real job, I will. 
And she's like, you're so close, just stick with it. And I had, me and Dan had similar conversations about test match over, about cricket with balls and about, you know, things I was doing for ESPN and things that, you know, people like George DeBell and everyone was doing. And I think we all kind of felt if we stuck with it, it would work and we would eventually, we didn't think we'd take over the industry in perhaps the way that we have, but we thought we'd get a career out of it. And I think, you know, you have to understand that we were so alien to the way that everything else uh, was going on. But to be in the press box and to see, you know, one conservative old journalist looking at two pricks at the ashes and see another conservative old journalist listening to Test Match Sofa was such a weird time to be there when they're also having conversations about how we're not real journalists and how we're, you know, we're ruining the system. And do you remember, I mean, you know, at that stage, people still thought the sofa was going to, you know, kill BBC and all these sorts of things. And yet... In the press box, they're sitting there listening and watching our stuff. It was such a weird moment of cricket culture. Around this time, you and Sam Collins out in Australia, you were doing the two chucks. You were also, you know, putting together, getting the interviews for uh, Death of a Gentleman, uh, where, you know, you really challenged journalism as, as it then was. You know, you were asking an awful lot of uncomfortable and difficult questions uh, really to power in a way that, that journalists hadn't been doing perhaps quite so much then. I think you have to go back to, so I, I sort of leave Test Match Sofa in 2011 and I go to work for Crick Info and I can't do both. I just can't fit both in as much as anything. And at that point, we're making videos and there are still a lot of people within Cricket Press basically saying we are not real journalists and we shouldn't be there. And I was working with Sam Collins, obviously, who we made two pricks at the ashes, then we'd made the two chucks together. And Sam and I were feeling a little bit frustrated at, we were making five minute fun, disposable content. And it was really good cricket content, but it was also, we felt like we could do something bigger. So we wanted to take that and make a film. And Sam had all the drive and I had a little bit of knowledge about how to make a film um, with my film filmmaking background. And we sort of started to push towards it. But at this stage, people are still not thinking that we're proper journalists. By 2013, all those guys who had said, you know, what we were doing was not journalism were now at the ground with camera crews filming themselves to do the exact same thing that we had done three years earlier that they had taken the piss out of. That's how much the industry had changed in those three years. And by this stage, we had now moved on and we are now doing far more serious journalism than they had. We were literally trying to get to the key of the game. Who runs the game? Why is it being run this way? Is there corruption involved? And is it eventually going to kill the, the format of cricket that everyone says they want to save and no one does anything about? So we're now making, you know, a huge thing. I remember when our film came out, a Daily Mail journalist sort of taking me aside and just going, you've done more journalism than, than I've ever done in my career in one film. You know, and it, the, the switch between all those things was so random and bizarre behind us we now have all the cricket journalists doing the same silly little videos that we used to do, although with less um, dick jokes, to be fair, but the same basic concept, you know, them with a laptop in front of their hand, maybe doing a podcast, and we're off talking to, you know, N. Srinivasan and Giles Clark and, you know, who runs the game and why are you running it and is there corruption and all these sorts of things. The sort of change with that was quite interesting. And it was also, I remember someone from Cricket Australia saying, if you look at it, if you guys were... In the industry and working properly in 2011 and you had jobs you would never have been able to do this if you weren't or still freelance and trying to break into the industry and they and they said and if you look at ed cowan who obviously is the star of death of a gentleman he said if he'd already played five tests there's no way he would have agreed to that it was a very much right place right time everyone was 
everyone involved with Death of a Gentleman was so desperate. And so it went, I basically went from making fun of cricketers on a website to making a film about corruption within the heart of the game itself that would end up showing to, you know, 5,000 people at the BFI and Michael Holding being on a, on a stage with me. And, you know, there was, if you go back and Google it from that era, you know, the Times ran about four editorials on how it was an incredible moment in cricket. You know, The Guardian did the same. The Telegraph did the same. You know, there were specials. BBC did a special on our film. It was an incredible moment to go from basically the guy that made, you know, silly jokes on a blog to being the guy that newspapers wrote about. And that's essentially what had happened. And, the you know, sort of dragged the industry forward um, in, in a way. And people started looking at it. Before we made that film, other than Gideon Haig, I don't think anyone in the world thought about or looked at cricket politics. And suddenly everyone was, had to cover it. I mean, John Etheridge, I think, was talking about the film when he said, when I, you know, when I came into cricket writing, we were told to write about men in, uh, men in boots, not men in suits. Have a look at cricket writing today. There's a lot of writing about men in suits these days. I mean, talk a bit about... You know, the irony of being seen, you know, as not cricket people being outside the establishment, uh, disruptors, uh, the assumption that, you know, we didn't really know proper cricket. And yet, you know, we were called Test Match Sofa for a reason, Test Match Sofa. Uh, and similarly, you know, you're making Death of a Gentleman, you're challenging the authorities about how they're being sort of reckless in their care of Test cricket. It's interesting at the point when you suddenly realise that you've gone from being the guy... I mean, my website was called Cricket With Balls and it literally had a picture of a cricket with cricket testicles on it that I got my cousin, a professional graphic artist, who makes ads for, like, Smirnoff to make. To go from that to being the voice of Test Cricket's future is a very weird thing. And we were seen as outsiders, whether it be Test Match Sofa, uh, whether it be Cricket With Balls, whether it be a lot of the bloggers, the people on Twitter. And yet it was us who were actually asking the bigger questions. And it was also, there's a reason that Test Match Sofa has the word test in it. It could have been the IPL Sofa, although that'd be a terrible name. They would have had to rename it. But there's many different things that you should, could have called. And Cricket With Balls, I made my career on, on Test Match Cricket. And also, you know, Death of a Gentleman is a film about Test Match Cricket. And yet we were seen as disruptors and, you know, untrustworthy and we were going to ruin the game. And, you know, I was going to wear a cap in the press box at Lords. How could these things happen? But at the same time, we were actually doing the heavy lifting on preserving the more conservative part of the game, Test Cricket. It's a very weird way of looking at it. But I think that they, because no one really took any notice in what we were doing, they they... They didn't have a look at the, the content that we were providing. They were more having a look at how we were providing it. And realistically, you know, the medium is not the message. The message is the message. And we were proper cricket fans, and that shone through. And that's why we were allowed to make, you know, a film about Test cricket. That's why we could broadcast, you know, test matches from Bangladesh and all those sorts of things, because we had the passion for the original thing. We were just doing it in a way that looked silly to, to people who were conservative and didn't understand the media. But we were just slightly ahead of our curve. Not because we're genius. We were lucky and things just came ahead, but that's where we were and that's how we came around. So we went from being the disruptors to being the, uh, you know, I'm a cricket historian now. It's a ridiculous world that we're suddenly in, that I'm a cricket historian. Jared, with Test Match Schaefer and Cricket with Balls at the start, and I guess I suppose to an extent this project we're doing here, there's that passion of the amateur, uh, and I'm interested in that. Of course, there's the diligence of professionals, and hopefully we all exhibit that in, in different forms as well, but the passion projects that have informed a lot of your work, such as going away and talking about the preservation of Test Cricket, for example, how important was it that you were principally a fan first? 
So my journalism, sports journalism course, is called Fans with Laptops. And the reason is that journalists looked down on what they called fans with laptops when I first started. There was, that was the big phrase. He's not a journalist, he's a, fans with la- he's a fan with a laptop, which is what I was called. I've been called that directly. I've heard people sneak that behind my back, right? My whole thing was, do you have, you have any idea... If you, I worked in factories, I worked in call centers, I had all normal jobs, I would work, you know, 60 hours a week in jobs. Imagine the passion I would have to also know the name of all 25 listed Victorian players. And not just my state, but also the South Australian players. And also know all the counties and probably know who the key player in every county is. Think of the amount of passion I had to put into that. Test match sofa. Cricket with balls. Uh, you see all these people come up uh, uh, after us as well, you know. Uh, I, I would say that there's been this whole groundswell of people move up after te- uh, Test Match Sofa and Cricket with Balls came through. And what I see from all of them is this incredible cricket knowledge, or if they don't write about cricket, this incredible football knowledge because they are so passionate as a fan. And that's basically what Cricket with Balls was. It, it started as a fan blog and it goes through to Death of a Gentleman. Why did I have that passion to work out who was running the game? Because I actually give a shit about who runs the game, because I actually give a shit about what happens to the game. So I put all my attention and all my passion into that. And then, luckily by that point, I have journalism skills. I know how to put things together. I understand how documentary films are making. Because of Test Match Sofa, I understand about broadcasting. I understand about my voice and all these sorts of things. I've written for magazines. I'd edited a magazine by that point. I mean, we haven't talked about Spin Cricket that the magazine, what a you know incredible place that was. George Jobell's personal fiefdom, of which Test Match Chauffeur was involved with. We were all there, involved in all of those projects because of how much we loved the game and how much we we had this desperation to know even more about the game. And that's what we did. We sort of threw ourselves in and be. You know, we learned how to be broadcasters. We learned how to be journalists. We learned how to be commentators. We learned how to be producers and directors and publishers and editors. But all of that came from our passion and our fan. That wasn't always the case. Before that, you would have the you would you would have someone who worked in a newspaper, who was who liked cricket a little bit, who or liked football a little bit, and they'd be thrown in, and they'd like it. It's not that those guys weren't passionate about it, but they weren't like us. They weren't spending all of their time throwing themselves in. You suddenly had this incredible mixture because of the technology available and the people that we were of this sort of this cricket nerdism clashing with the technology and we could change and morph it. You know, I'm not the same writer I was when I started Cricket With Balls. Dan Norcross is not the same broadcaster he is when he started Test Match Sofa. All of those things have been us learning the whole time. We're, we're desperate to know it, but it's all underwritten, really, by the fact that we are massive cricket fans and we are desperate for that. So we, we have almost made ourselves better broadcasters and writers and producers of things because that will allow us to stay in cricket more. And I think that is a huge part of it. But it all comes down from the fandom. Previously, I think it was less so. I don't think that's how journalism worked before. And now you're getting this incredible thing. Look at something like The Ringer in America. What an incredible you know, creation The Ringer is. You know, being able to create something that is sport and pop culture and put it together. That wouldn't have existed as a newspaper because it would have been a bizarre thing to do. We can create things like The Ringer now and Test Match Over and Cricket With Balls and all those things because we there are enough people out there who have passion and if you are pa- you're passionate and you work hard and you're smart, you can create something really, truly amazing and I think that's what happened here. 
Let's go on to talk a little bit more about Crick Info. Now, you've been involved in exploring the history of that organisation and, of course, you worked for them for a long time. It feels as though, looking at it now, you were the perfect cultural fit for them. You look at the way their, their bread and butter was that text commentary which brought together a lot of ultras around the world. We talked about passion before. But that link back to the traditional form of the game as well, the synthetic commentary is not too dissimilar, really, from, from text commentary, and we've discussed that on Calling the Shots through the Bradman era. So for you, with all that in mind, did it feel as though Crick Info was the perfect place for you to write full-time? So 1992, as far as I'm aware, there was only one computer in Australia that was linked to the internet, and that was at Melbourne University. And it happened to be run by this guy called Robert Ells, who's a massive cricket fan, who was part of this sort of community. I wouldn't call them Crick Info at that stage, um, but they were, they were on a bunch of uh, message boards and they had a chat program, whatever. Robert Ells had a TV in front of him, right and an internet connection and he would write out commentary and it was very basic commentary that one moment basically allowed for all these people in america who had given up cricket by moving to america to study they'd go on and they'd be in university of texas and university of minnesota and you know they were rocket scientists and all these weird people but they love cricket english and indian and pakistani and australian they suddenly saw through what robert ells was doing that they could create like commentary online And they start coming together in this incredible way of crowdsourcing. Like at one stage, one of them had a microwave oven, right? They sold the microwave oven. Sorry, they swapped the microwave oven for a computer because one lab needed a microwave and they needed a computer. They would do these sorts of things. They did crowdfunding in 1993 and 1994 when there was no way of doing crowdfunding. Crowdfunding didn't even exist. And they did all of this because for the simple fact that they realized this was their way of getting back to cricket. They did all sorts of things. They, they actually live broadcast BBC uh, cricket, I think on the world service, to each other so that they could then commentate by a written text out on the thing. It was just such a random collection of people, but smart people, like really smart and passionate people that would go on to be incredibly, you know, uh, David McBean, you know, has gone on to run cable and wireless in the West Indies and, you know, Simon King, who's had an incredible career and everything Simon King does. And he's, you meet Simon King, he's such a nerd, he can be look you in the face and he's got this incredible energy but you put him in, into a project and he found a way of getting Zimbabwean people on internet you know Crick Info people found out that a country would go online by basically looking at the fact that now people were in, in that country were looking up you know their, their website and you created this form of commentary and it was properly amateur all the way through and in 1996 they tried to sell it to the ICC at that stage it was arguably the world's biggest website And it had been, at times during the World Cup, the world's biggest website. And they tried to sell it to the ICC. And the ICC was so put off by the fact that this was fans who had come together and created this that they distanced themselves from it and they said they didn't want it. They didn't want to be involved with the fans. So the ICC gave up probably what was one of the, well, let's be honest, a $2 billion website. They gave up a $2 billion website because they didn't understand it. And so... It was exactly what we're talking about with Test Match Over and with Cricket with Balls and all these sorts of things. Crick Info just took longer because the internet took longer. But, you know, Mick Jagger comes along and contacts Crick Info and literally says to them, do you want to broadcast cricket? Because I want to watch cricket. The next thing you know, Crick Info has got, and I promise you, it was one frame every five seconds. Can you imagine? There's someone at the top of the mark doing, you know, looking at the ball and doing this. And the next thing you know, there's a flash of them running across the screen. And the next thing, it's a batsman readjusting his box. 
Th- that's what you were seeing. And then you had TV commentary on top of it, but they kept doing it and they broadcast their own things. They broadcast, I think, from like the ICC event in 1998 on like a webcam. They had like a webcam at the front out and they had, I think Michael Holding might have um, commentated for them from a West Indies game at one stage. It was a ridiculous thing, but they were so passionate and they were so smart and talented that they brought this together. And what you had is... Exactly what we had a generation later is you had really interesting people from around the world who would never have met without without cricket and technology. But because of cricket technology, suddenly they were able to bring this thing together. And by 2000, it was basically 97% of you know cricket traffic was on Crickinfo at that point. It was that big. It was uh, you know they were offered. I'm trying to remember. I think they were they were valued at 120 million dollars in 2001. That was understating what that website was worth. And they ended up in the dot-com boom, wasting it all and doing everything bad. They were losing $6 million a month. They took the money in the wrong way. They spent their money in the wrong way. They spent $300,000 on a CMS thing that they never even used. I mean, they they weren't businessmen. They were cricket nerds. And they just happened to know technology and they had this passion for cricket and they created this incredible thing. One of the saddest things for me is that they ended up selling 70% of the company, I believe, for like a pound because they'd run it into the ground. They had no money to keep it. It was so big that they couldn't afford to keep it running. And the people who had basically been there before Crickinfo had existed, so back from late 80s all the way through to the early 2000s, had created one of the world's most incredible websites Then didn't make any money off it. But you can understand my dad uses it. And he used it before he knew what Crick Info was or what it was. But he knew that when he was at his office, that's what you did. You couldn't put the radio on. You couldn't turn the tally on in your office, but you could have Crick Info in the background. And that's what Crick Info was. Everyone had at that page open if they were at work. And it became that for the entire world. What an incredible thing that was at a time when you couldn't even find online commentary for other sports. The early internet is a bit of a wild west, but Crick Info had so many firsts. Probably the, it was probably the first cricket was probably the first sport that was ever had live web commentary, which was probably Robert L's. But it was the first place that had live score bot where you could just literally go into the chat room and write in score, please. And it would give you the score. You know, it had everything. And then you had the first broadcasts online. At one stage, their videos, they had videos up. The only person, I think the only videos that did better in that year was 95, 96 was the Monica Lewinsky trial. Right, so Crickinfo was ahead of everything. It had Stats Guru. It had a lot. It basically, they invented Twitter on Crickinfo, and they didn't even know they'd invented it because they were so obsessed with cricket, they didn't realize that they had created something that could affect, you know, Libya and freedom and all these sorts of things and Black Lives Matter. They were so nerdish that they were like, "Oh, we have to get this to refresh because otherwise, you're going to have to press refresh to get the latest cricket scores." How do we get something to refresh where every minute you have a new cricket ball coming up? They were creating a whole new universe and they had no idea because all they wanted to do was do cricket stuff. And you had some of the best and brightest minds. So Vishal Misra has worked for Google. You know, he he gets headhunted by Google. He's like a a professor at Columbia, tenured professor. I think, you know, that means he can get his cock out and they can't fire him at this point, right? You got people like him involved. You got someone like Simon King, who after that came up with all these other industries that he created. Badri, who, you know, runs, basically Badri owns all the Tamil books in India and Sri Lanka. I think Badri publishes them. So incredible human beings that went through there. And yet the thing they created was, oh, how how are we going to get cricket scores for each other? So, Jared, let's get back to you um so you finished death of a gentleman and now in a kind of weird sort of way you were the outsider who was inside you were doing stuff for talk sport for bbc plentifully for abc uh, did you feel 
you know, I mean, it'd be quite understandable if you did. It's a sense of imposter syndrome of some kind, you know. And did you feel also that you had to maybe modify your style, having done these kind of disruptive things and cricket with balls and what have you, and now you were going to be on these venerated platforms like ABC, BBC, etc.? It was very weird when you suddenly realise you're at that next level when uh, Aggers would get me on BBC all the time. And I think you do have to change slightly. Uh, like, for instance, I, until I was on the BBC, I didn't really realise that if, if you listen to my early stuff, you know, Aggers would get me in for the lunch break and maybe a tea break or something. Oh, random Australian kid is here. Let's put him on the air. And I'd be on there and... Aggers would have to re-explain everything I would say because I was so used to talking to Cricket with Balls audience and Test Match Sofa audience and Cricket for audience and they're like hardcore cricket nuts. And then you get on the on the BBC and they know most of the names of the players who were playing in that Test Match for England. But some, some people are just doing the gardening and everything and Aggers would be explaining it. So you suddenly realise that there's all these different parts of cricket that are completely separate and, and different. So... BBC got me on to do a, a quiz. It was an Ashes quiz. Simon Mann had this big thing he wanted to do. And Simon Mann must have looked for every other famous Australian cricket journalist, couldn't find one. I was in the country, gets me on. It was me, Jim Maxwell, and I think his name's Mark Little. He's from Neighbours. And he's like massively famous in England. But I have no idea who Neighbours characters are or actors are. So I don't know who this Mark Little is. But we're the three people on one side. And on the other side, I think it was Mark Butcher, Miles Jupp and uh, Simon Hughes. And we're on this thing and I meet Jim and, and Jim sort of is a very lovely man when you meet him. I meet Mark Little. Uh, we have a good thing. And then just before we went ahead, Jim le- leaned into me and said, you know, I'm not great on cricket trivia. And I was like, oh, that's, that's all right. I'm sure we'll get through. And then Mark Little leans into me and goes, you know, I, uh, I have no idea about cricket. And I was like, oh, well, I'll be answering some questions here. And if you go back to that broadcast, and Simon Mann might have it, I think I answered 85% of the questions from our side of the table. And we should have won. And I think we just lost at the end. But I remember Jim about 10 minutes in, literally turning and looking at me as if to go, who is this guy? How does he know all this stuff? Because even Jim, who's like the cricket guy in Australia, is looking at me. And that was about the point where I went, maybe I'm not an imposter. Maybe I do know what I'm talking about. And I'm not just some random guy who works on a blog. So that must have been 2013. So by that point, I'm starting to feel confident. I then end up commentating in South Africa. And I had no idea what I was doing. At the end of the first day, I went up to Neil... Um, Neil Manthorpe, you know, that respected South African commentator. And I said, was that, was that okay? And Manners sort of looked at me and went, yeah, it was great. Of course it was great. And I went, no, that's my first time ever doing proper broadcasting. Like, I need to know. And he goes, what? He said, no, you'll be fine. Just keep doing that. Just don't, don't do anything different. And so I'm still learning at this stage. And ABC was sort of a bit of a, an interesting organisation to work with at that point, I think is the safest way of putting it, although you can read a blog I wrote about it if you wanted to hear the unsafe version. And I couldn't get any feedback. And then the next summer, I was back in Australia and they got me on. And, you know, you, you do a couple of tests and you pop in and, you know, it's you and Jeff Lawson and it's you and Eddie Cowan and it's you and Trent Copeland. Everyone's played for Australia except for me. And I, I'm always, I was never the commentator, so I was always like the, the guest. So you've got, you know, guy who got hit in the face by the West Indies talking beside guy who once, uh, you know, made 100 for uh, Camberfield against West Meadows. It's not quite the same. And so you, you, you really, you're getting in this headspace, but it didn't really affect me. Until the time I was at the MCG and they got me to come in and commentate. 
and the first time I was called in, and I'd done all, I'd done an interview when we first started Death of a Gentleman on on Grandstand, gone in into the main box. But I, suddenly I was walking down the stairs, and it's this really steep thing at the MCG to get to the front of the box. It's a really weird, stupid setup. And as I'm walking down the stairs, there was like four broadcasters by that point. Son of Gavaska was walking on for his um, thing. Glenn McGrath was working on, walking on for his stint and Ian Chappell was walking on for his stint. We're all walking down to do our stint together. I'm in the ground that I grew up in. Like I get emotional about the MCG. I've probably written 50,000 words about that place and what it means to me uh, as a young guy growing up. It's a hugely important place in my life. And I'm now about to walk on air and broadcast besides Jim Maxwell and those sorts of people in our booth and next to us, Ian Chappell's about to talk about something. And next to them, Glenn McGrath's about to talk about something. And down the end, Sonny's about to talk about something. And I was just like, I can't believe I'm here considering that my website's logo did have a pair of testicles um, in the shape of cricket balls on it. Like, it's such a weird thing to get to. And you start to think, all these sorts of things, all these moments... It's not like I ever want, ever thought. I, I always say Tom Cruise is the sort of person who gets to a level and he goes, I've made it. For the rest of us, it's just these different levels that you keep going up and, and that you keep doing. And, you know, someone famous, you know, you, you walk past someone famous and they go, hi, Jared. You know, I, I remember when Athos did that the first time and I was like, how does Athos know who I am? How, how is this a thing? What, is he watching Two Pricks at the Ashes? Like, how does this person know that I exist? Is he on YouTube searching me? And you, you keep going to those sorts of things. But the truth is that when you're in a situation with Jim Maxwell or um, Neil Manthorpe or any of those sorts of people, I, I remember one time I did um, a BBC thing with Glenn McGrath and I said something and Glenn McGrath said, yeah, Jared, you're totally right there. And I was like, am I? Is this a thing? Glenn McGrath thinks I'm right about something? And, and you, you just start chipping away until the point, and, and then you turn around and you realise that to everyone else, you're part of the mainstream, and you still feel like this weird, freakish in, outsider, which I do. But now if you look at the press box, they're all people who grew up following me. They're all people who came along me. I now have a gaggle of people who look up to me and think that I'm a leader in the press box, and I'm still this weird freak. I'm still 5% of the fucked up weird shit who doesn't know how he got here and doesn't know why he's there. But as long as people keep paying me and keep nodding at me and Glenn McGrath says that a nice thing occasionally, I'm like, I must be doing something right. And you keep going. And next thing you know, Raul Dravid's commentating on air and he's quoting you. And you're like, how has this happened? So, Jared, you go on this sort of long journey uh, where you are part of so the establishment, if you like, having been well outside of it to begin. And it, it all ties together really neatly uh, last year at the World Cup final at Lords where yourself, me, Daniel, a host of others are all working on a, an unofficial broadcast together for SEN Radio uh, back into Australia, uh, where a whole number of these outsidery types had found themselves on air, both in our commentary box and other commentary boxes in the press box there. I remember at one point Daniel made some observation on the day that it really did feel as though it was a, a culmination of a, a lot of people's journeys uh, from White Line Wireless in, in my case but others as well uh, there was uh, cricket with balls with what you'd done at the very start and there was all these people there from Test Match Chauffeur as well I mean it was a pretty special day yeah I mean thinking back on the 2019 World Cup final I mean what a what a freak show box we had uh, you know it, the most official person in that box is probably John Norman right from TalkSport and John Norman is a working class guy from Stratham and even he, and he's now broadcasting a Cricket World Cup final. And he's got there through, I won't even go into his backstory, but he's one of the 5% of fucked up weird shit. You've got myself is there, you're, uh, Adam Collins is there, 
you've got someone like Barrett Sundaransen coming in, you know, random person there. Uh, Norcross is around. Uh, Zoltzman is around. Just random people working there. And I'm sitting there calling this game uh, with uh, Damien Fleming beside me. Damien Fleming, I was on the MCG in 1994 for a cricket coaching clinic, and he was teaching me how to bowl an outswinger. And suddenly it's Damien Fleming and a host of the weirdest people in cricket. Lemon's on the, on the floor having a sleep at one stage during the game. You know, people are having weird conversations behind us, and we're in this weird box where there was like... You know, I, I think they kept the stationery or something in the box that we were in, and people kept coming in from the ECB to take things away. It just felt like everything had come together in this you know, sort of beautiful moment of, I, I can't get past that 5% of fucked up uh, uh, weird shit of all rising to the top at the same time. And, like, my friends would come in and see me commentating, and we like, have a head nod. No one could quite believe that we were all there, that we were being able to call this. And it didn't matter if you were on the BBC at that stage or... Um, you know, the official, one of the other official feeds or, you know, SEN like we were, everyone was just like, how is this a thing? And you were all there with your friends. And I was now like one of the old people. I remember meeting Adam Collins outside the MCG for the first time when he, we were trying to film something and he was hanging around like an annoying fan, you know, waiting to come and chat to me. And at that stage, all I knew of him was he had a Hawthorne jumper, uh, you know, on, on his Twitter profile. That's about all I knew. And then suddenly you're in a situation where me and him are calling it together. And there were other people in that room that, had told me and would go on to tell me that they got into the industry because of, of me. And I think that night, Vish might have been there with us as well. Like, Vish was my work experience kid. Ben Jones, who works for CrickViz, he was there hanging out with us. You know, he was like, probably started reading Cricket with Balls when he was about eight. You know, you had this ridiculous group of people and suddenly the outsiders had taken over. And it was so incredibly interesting to see all of those things come together and, you know, have, know that Norcross was there as well. And I don't know, it was a very, it was a very special moment. That, that whole game was something else for me. And, you know, there, was, there were little moments that we could do that, like, I never wanted to be a cricket commentator, but being a cricket commentator, you know, you suddenly get to feel there's a stake in history that we had. And we were a part of that history and you feel it as a writer and you feel it as a broadcaster and the ability to be able to do that and to be able to call that game with all these other, this collection of misfits and weirdos who shouldn't have been there, suddenly in the press box at Lords for a World Cup final with a World Cup winner beside us commentating with this gaggle of our friends and weirdos who are respected and all these sorts of people, everything sort of came together then and it was a magical, I think, moment for us. And one huge thing for me is I know how poorly we were treated when a lot of us came through that system by the other journalists and we're now, I think some of us are senior and we're now trying to make it so that the next people come through don't have to go through with that. I think anyone who was there that day would have actually felt the love that we all feel for each other, for the job, for cricket itself and for each other and that's what that's what it should be. We should all be brought together by the cricket and then love what we're doing and having a great time doing it. And it was, that's what that day was. We all had an incredible moment and it was a, it was a beautiful thing to be able to share that with so many of my friends. It was extraordinary roll call that day of people who had come, you know, from Test Match Sofa, from White Line, from Crick Info, from the internet, from blogging. Talk us through those, those names. So the, the, I remember during the World Cup, like walking around and I was on the grass, you get, you get shepherded across the ground at one stage. I'm walking around on the grass and I look up and Atif Nawaz is there. Now, Atif and I met on the sofa. We wrote a sitcom together while we were on the sofa, still unmade. 
um, tragically, which is a shame because Dan Norcross is a leading character in that. And you suddenly realise that he is like the ground announcer at the ground and he's got Wazim Akram next to him. I'm on the turf walking around the ground. And you start to put all this together and, you know, Lizzie Ammon's in the box and Gary Naylor's in the box and, you know, Vish, my old work experience kid, is in the box and, you know, you've got Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon and um, Dobell and Zoltzman and all these people that were like random people that were drinking Stella cans on Test Match Sofa or talking over each other on White Line Wireless or writing for Spin Cricket Magazine with, you know, uh, unpaid. All of those people suddenly were in the box, World Cup, whether it be for the final, whatever. And the names are just ridiculous. And it was a, it was such a interesting moment to be a part of. And, you know, the collection, and you go back to even some of the other more random people, but, you know, guerrilla cricket. I, I had a similar moment when I'm in Ireland. You know, I, I'm in Ireland such a huge moment for me to be at a country's first test. It was such an emotional thing. And then on the other side of, of the ground is this way too tiny box. And in there is my mate, Nigel Henderson, who I dragged down to test match sofa against his best intentions. I had to fight and drag him to get him on there. You know, Nigel Walk is there. Other test match sofa people are there. It's now called Gorilla Cricket, but it's the same thing, right? And they're there and they're capturing history. And the World Cup final was the same thing. We were all there capturing history and we none of us... There were no no one was tapped on the shoulder. No one was there on purpose, if you know what I mean. It was a collection of accidents and hard work and a love for cricket that brought everyone into that box. And the voices are also different because none of us were supposed to be there. We didn't all sound like, well, Daniel Norcross or, or Jonathan Agnew. You know, most of us don't sound that way. You know, I've got this weird Australian accent and I'm loud and I, you know, spit when I talk and... You know, then you've got these other people who come out with different accents and different ways of talking. You've got someone like Jeff Lemon, who's a poet, and you've got someone like Nigel Walker, who sounds like he's just rolled out of, you know, his, his local pub. It's incredible sort of collection of people that didn't deserve to be there and are there, um, well, no, did deserve to be there, but wouldn't have been there in another generation. We wouldn't have even got a chance to be there. And, um, you know, it's not like we asked to be there. We just kind of forced our way in through hard work and determination and loving cricket. So, I mean, if you look at it from a logistical point of view and take out the emotion for, from a little bit, if Adam Collins doesn't go out and buy the rights to the UAE and, you know, mortgage his future and mortgage his family's future and almost ruin his life and his, credit, his future credit rating, I'm sure, by getting that, those rights, you know, the World Cup doesn't happen and we're not all there. And, you know, that, that sort of thing, it's sort of that's the next evolution of there is a lot of us have all chatted about, you know, forming our own cricket commentary collective essentially which me and dan were talking about all the way back to test match sofa and i've had talks with colo about it and i've had talks with friends in india and pakistan and the west indies and when we see colo buy those rights we're like eventually we might be in a situation where we can just buy rights and go and commentate things the way that we think they should be commentated and then sell those feeds around the world the world cup final was like a a test run of that. And I think we proved that we can do it, essentially. But Guerrilla Cricket have now done it, and I think others will do it. You'll see a lot of people taking punts and buying rights and then going off and sending off the commentary. And the truth is, we can do this, and we've now proved it for almost a decade that we can do it. And we don't do it like other people. We do it in our own way. But that, turns out, is also something that people like. Do you think that, you know, when you look back at it, that last decade, that decade of the disruptors, if you like, uh, did they actually achieve anything or was it really that they individually managed to get into cricket, they got a job and they've become assimilated into the establishment or or have they actually changed in any way, do you think, 
the way cricket is quizzed, looked at, broadcast, understood, written about. So Mike Selvey, just before he retired, was sent off to do a behind-the-scenes Big Bash piece for The Guardian. A 6,000-word piece, behind-the-scenes on how T2010 goes ahead. And I was like, I haven't written that and I've got nothing to do with The Guardian. But I, I couldn't help but think, does that piece exist if I haven't been doing what I've been doing? And you look at it and you look at, uh, you know, notable journalists doing podcasts. Mark Nicholas has a podcast. Now, some of that is technology, but it's also because, you know, the final word exists and it's a big deal. And Mark Nicholas knows that it's a big deal. And he looks at it and goes, this is a thing. And you see all these things that have happened. We have changed the industry, partly because of the technology, but partly because we are not, most of us are not anything like the people who have been in the industry before. We can't help but change the industry. I said to Self one day, it was at his retirement thing, the last, last day um, he did for The Guardian, we went over to the pub and I said, what should I be doing that I'm not doing? And he looked at me like dumbfounded and went, you've already done 100 things more you know, in your career, 100 different styles and 100 different things that I haven't done. We are already doing that. And if I'm doing that and Dobell's doing that and Adam Collins is doing that and Jeff Lemon is doing that and Dan Liebke is doing that, all these people around the world are doing that, we have changed the industry. Now, in 10 years' time, someone's going to find your podcast here, listen to this and go, but aren't they just the old guys on that thing that sound as boring as everyone else? We will eventually become those people. There's no doubt about that um, because as creative as we are, and we are probably more creative than perhaps previous generations because we had to be creative to get in, we're eventually going to be that sort of people. I always look at, you know, my favourite band is a band in Melbourne called Tism and they always say, doesn't matter how subversive the rock star is, eventually they're on the TV showing you how to make a bird feeder right? There is a certain point where we're all eventually going to be the people who make bird feeders. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if we want to think that we're going to be rebels forever. And I'll keep a bit like, you know, a bit like how Michael Jordan keeps going, that guy cut me in high, high school. I'm still, I'm still trying to prove everyone wrong. Well, it's nonsense, isn't it? I'm not really an outsider. I might feel like one, but it's complete nonsense. Eventually, I'm going to become the norm. Dan Norcross is going to become the norm. Adam Collins is going to become the norm. All of us are, right? And at that stage, then hopefully another generation come through. What I would like is that that generation has the same amount of passion that we have, the same amount of cricket nerdery, and that they can bring it together. I don't care if they do it better than us. I hope they do it better than us. Then I can read it and take a bit of a break. That doesn't matter to me. I just hope I don't sit around and tut tut and go, well, back in our days, we would have done that slightly different. We would have had a larger can of Stella, you know, uh, when we were doing that, right? So for me, that doesn't matter. What matters is that we have disrupted this industry and it needed to be disrupted. And I believe, and I'm maybe selfish because I'm one of the people, but I believe it's been disrupted for the better. I think it's more diverse now, has more diverse opinions, it has more diverse thinking. You, whether it's an article or commentary or a podcast or whatever, look at the different varying sorts of areas that you can have now. You know, one of the biggest podcasts in the world was by Sabash Ajayaraman, right? The Cricket Couch. He was an Indian guy, grew up in India, went to America and a university, and he's like interviewing Raul Dravid on his podcast, and he's talking about women's cricket's rights and images, you know, sexism and racism within the sport. You can't tell me that we haven't done something. If all of those, if he exists and can work on ESPN while he's still an engineer who's saving bridges um, from collapsing in America, I think we have done something. And hopefully that the next generation does their thing and the next generation does their thing. And then, you know, we end up in, you know, really old documentaries with gray hair and we look really respectable when we know that we're not respectable and that we're horrible people and that it's all come together by luck and, uh, you know, right timing. But realistically, you cannot say 
that Crick Info, that Test Match Sofa, that, you know, uh, the, the cricket Twitter community has not changed what cricket is and how it's broadcast and how it's written about and how the public get involved with it. I'm sorry, you can't say that. We have. You may want to downplay it and that's very fair. And you may may say, well, that, that Kimber, he, he annoys me. And, oh, Adam Collins, ugh. Norcross, oh, well, I just want to hear Aggers more. I can understand all those people saying that. But we have had an impact and we have changed things. And um, I think for the better and hopefully the next generation get a better run at it and they can be even more creative and even more weird and even more wacko than we were because that would be great to watch wouldn't it it's the final word story time adam collins and jeff lemon uh you haven't had a chance yet to listen to that jared chat in full jeff but i recommend that you do because i think you will uh, get a lot out of it during your weekend and i hope that if you've reached the end of the show that you have done so as well as always uh, we thank bad producer productions for putting our show out twice a week that's jay Mueller, astrid edwards and dave collins our tremendous editor uh we only throw more work to him really in terms of how much uh, podcasting we're doing uh, week to week and he takes it all in his stride and does a superb job so thank you DC thank you to Wisdom Cricket Monthly and the Night Watchman uh, for sponsoring this program today Seabus Super who are with us uh, again, another one of those supporters have been there with us throughout the course of 2020. We love working with them. Uh, everybody who's reviewed and rated us on iTunes, those five-star reviews or those few words you can drop in there on iTunes does continue to make a big difference as far as the sorts of people who can find the show who haven't heard about us in the past. And Jeff, our brilliant patrons, patron.com forward slash the final word. And that is where you can sign up to make sure that you can join yeah. us next week for the Stuart McGill Show. I'd like to thank the Academy. Uh, I'd like to thank God. <laughs> for, for granting me the talents of talking endlessly about cricket. Yeah, the Stuart McGill show, that'll be great fun, I think. I'm, I'm just looking into the future and I've got a good feeling about that. November 12th, it'll be the evening Australia time, nine in the morning. England time, eight o'clock in the evening Australian time or wherever else slots in between that. I, I guess that that may leave our American listeners somewhat at 4am. But it'll also be up uh, we'll, we'll put it up after we've mm. done it the video will be be up for patrons if you can't listen to it or watch it live you'll be able to see it later so uh, come along we'll hope to see your faces in the zoom grid well jeff it should be the case that our american uh, listeners are in very good spirits next week because all signs are pointing towards a, a change in in government there but time will tell jeff we'll be following that on the weekend as well thanks for Everyone's company. Thanks for your messages. Uh, let's do it all again next week. Bye for now. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell.